0: all right all right all right hello and welcome to the podcast your cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts as always you're joined by your boy heavy day is here from the upside down library and we are thankful for our amazing sponsors seeds here now the best seeds in the game guarantee on satisfaction not just germination you want to get that new exotic mic red pop drop or that new archive drop it's coming soon hit them up they got you sorted likewise a huge shout out to biologicals they've got the best beneficial bugs in the game in my opinion everything to keep those mites at bay those fungus gnats dead and everything to keep your garden happy healthy and poppin hitem them up they got everything you need And last but not least, big shout out to the Patreon gang. You guys are the lifeblood of the show. As always, we appreciate you helping to keep the show happening. If anyone wants to check out additional content, unreleased episodes, and early access to future episodes, Google the podcast Patreon. It'll bring it up. Trust me. On this episode, we're extremely, extremely grateful to have Steve... From Potent Ponics and the Growing With The Fishes podcast, here to, share, here to share all his knowledge about aquaponics grown in Africa, IPM, organics, and so, so, so much more. I feel like I'm doing a disjustice at this point. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Alrighty, so a big thank you and welcome to our friend with the fishes, Steve of Potent Ponics and the Growing With The Fishes podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks a lot for having me, man. It's quite, quite awesome to have you. Uh, we had you on a long time ago and you're one of the, the more favorite episodes that we have on our, uh, on our audio version. So it's really awesome to come and uh, hang out with you and, and talk with you on your show and uh, learn more about uh, things down under.
0: You're too kind, man. I I love being able to come on your show and I I certainly learned a lot. The first thing I'd love to ask you though, what have you been smoking on recently?
1: Oh man, lately I've been smoking on a lot of uh, concentrates. I've been doing mostly live resin and live rosin. Um, Some Gorilla Glue 4 lately just because it's quite available here in uh, Southern Oklahoma and then also a little 10th Planet. Uh, And then uh, what else? We had uh, a a uh, strawberry banana sunset or something like that I think was the other one that we've been smoking on lately but I'm more of a concentrate person uh, I have uh, some digestive tract stuff that uh, the concentrates really help a lot with and um, you know as as someone is using it daily for medical reasons as well as enjoyment uh, I tend to get you know a lot better bang for my buck spending money for concentrates than I do for uh, for flower.
0: Wow what a range of awesome awesome different directions we can go in with that one and I want to hear about all of them I guess the first thing that comes to mind is Oklahoma you don't hear a lot about the scene out there what what's your take?
1: Uh, Oklahoma is very interesting you have uh, a lot of um... uh, very opposite ends of the skills skill spectrum I guess uh, uh, you have people that have you know just found out about cannabis that uh, you know maybe have a lot of acreage and and you know, a lot of money that they've been saved away that are just you know, learning how to grow cannabis for the first time. Maybe don't even know what a photo period is. Uh, and then you have all the way to, you know, people coming in from Cali that, are, you know, have everything kind of, uh, on a, on a nice system that, you know, they just plug and play and, and away they go. So it's, it's kind of interesting. You, you have, um, the price is stabilized at, at around $2,200 a pound for quite a long time, plus minus. I mean, you do have some super cheap stuff, uh, coming in now and then, but, um, you know, it really is kind of the better quality stuff really is kind of holding its price point uh, more than some of the other newer markets, uh, having gone through this in Colorado, California, and a couple of other states and a couple of other countries now as well. Um, uh, it really is kind of holding its price point a little higher than some of the other places, I guess, uh, maybe just because of, of the demand going up because of uh, current global events. But um Uh, It really is kind of interesting. It's also uh, one of the lowest regulated scenes. So if you're interested in developing products, if you're interested in um, developing methods, if you're interested in developing stuff that you're going to, um, you know, further refine, it's a great place to do that because, you know, 2,500 bucks uh, up until recently was all you needed to get going. And you you could have a full vertical uh, cultivation and extraction and a retail space for less than 10 grand. Uh, so um, you know to have all those licenses in a straight row is uh you know for 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 that cheap compared to the and and anyone that's tried for a license in California or, or some of the other states they're they're probably sitting here screaming at the at, at whatever they're listening to this on them um, uh, you know I know I spent a year and a half trying to get a license in California and and working with the city council and working with you know, everyone that we needed to 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 properly go about that and we're still denied one and then to be able to come out place like out here and just waltz in and, and immediately work with someone that's you know established out here and, and get going is quite nice and and kind of takes away a lot of the regulatory hurdles uh, it's kind of interesting to see kind of a conservative mindset uh, to the cannabis industry and there hasn't really been a lot of other states that have taken that No. One thing I said, I mean, one downside would be that it did take them a little bit longer than some other states to get universal testing in, which I would have liked to have seen done earlier. But aside from that, uh, you know, they are kind of slowly catching up incrementally uh, uh, with some of the other states in in a more sane way, I think, than than a lot of other places.
0: Yeah. Wow. It sounds like there's a lot of opportunities going on there, and a really nice detailed analysis of the situation. Would you think that the environment itself is conducive to growing cannabis? And in the long term, do you think it'll um, kind of rise as a a premier sort of state to be producing it in? Or do you think that it's just the the friendly legalities at the moment are what is allowing it to kind of flourish?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I think that um, there's definitely... All, a, a small, I would say maybe 15 to 20% of the cultivars that are traditionally going on, say, the West Coast that'll actually really excel here. And most of them having done two, two uh, summers now of growing stuff out here, the Durban poison, the Malawi, uh, Malawi and Swazi crosses and, and Southern African crosses, and then some of the other equatorial strains seem to be the ones that really, you know, they're used to the heat, they're used to the higher humidity, they don't really care so much about the heat. Uh, and, um, they seem to really, you know, pack on a few extra pounds or not a few extra pounds, but a few extra grams. And, you know, when you're talking fields or rooms, a few extra pounds, uh, when you're doing greenhouses or, or outdoors specifically, um, you know, you have really high temperatures, you know, it can get to be 107, 110. So w- what is that in uh, in Celsius? Is that like 37, 38? Yeah. Yeah. 40, I think you're banging. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, sorry, I, I just came back from Zimbabwe. So I'm still pretty fresh with my, my conversions. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, so, so you have to have strains that'll tolerate that your, your, your pure Indica's really do not like that heat, uh, or traditional Indica's we all know that the classifications have changed now, but, um, your traditional stuff that, you know, your purple heavy stuff really doesn't do super well out here uh, on the outdoor stuff. Again, that's more adapted to cold climate. Um, uh, you know, again, I'm being very generally broad, obviously there's lots of exceptions to that, but. Um, You don't see a lot of that stuff, Um, and you see a lot more fungal issues that people aren't used to. Um, uh, I've seen last year, there was a huge outbreak of septoria, not only in Oklahoma, but in Tennessee and and a lot of other states that were doing hemp. And I really think a lot of it came from uh, the lack of biodiversity in the soil. You had a huge outbreak of septoria, fusarium, botrytis and, and, and there was all in these fields that were corn or soybean or wheat last year that were just completely dead fields there was no microbiological diversity in the in the soil so how is this plant going to have any type of micro, for lack of better, uh, or for a simplification, a microbial inoc- uh, a vaccination or, or exposure to fungals to know how to make any type of resistance against them. You know, if you have a totally dead field, it's not going to know what what something is if it comes against it. It's like taking someone that was living in a bubble and dropping them into Times Square. You know, their immune system is not going to know what to do. It's the same kind of way. So I think that um, uh, we were able to quickly, at least in, in the three farms that I worked with last year on the, with the Septoria, uh, we were able to quickly use a heavy microbial inoculation of both um, a Bactillus complex, Bactillus pomillus, Bactillus subtilis, and a Lactobacillus, uh, making labs. Uh, uh, I, I prefer kefir-based labs than the traditional KNF labs, but uh, we can get into that later. Uh, but And then doing an IMO treatment after a, a week of that, uh, of rotating those other treatments... Uh, and uh, just as a water and a foliar, and we were able to treat almost all of those fields, and we only threw out maybe 15 plants across those three farms. So, um, and again, we caught it early. If those one, you know, once septoria gets beyond a certain point, those plants are boned, right? So it's systemic. So, um, but if you can catch it early, you can treat it. Uh, and we had very good luck by doing that. But again, it was with microbial inoculants, not with a spray, not with a fungal, not with sulfur, with a, with proper probiotics it's the only way to treat some of this stuff
0: wow i'm already looking forward to this chat already but before we get into it and i definitely want to chat about zimbabwe because that's just itching to be discussed i did want to quickly clarify or not clarify i just wanted to quickly ask you mentioned that in oklahoma the prices have stabilized at about 2200 a pound overall what do you predict will be the kind of long game pricing for a pound, do you think that is the ballpark of what you want it to be? Do you think that it's maybe still a little high and with more production, we could get it down? Where do you think a good price point is long-term?
1: I think, well, I guess the, the first answer I would have is I don't think anybody knows the honest answer to that, that question, <laughs> but I will tell you what I think is that I think that you're going to have craft growers that are going to have, that are going to stamp out a brand for themselves that for high quality, and they're going to hold their higher price. You, you see people like Dragonfly Earth Medicine and the, the wonderful group of people in the Pure network that they've built up and all those wonderful farmers that work so hard to grow, you know, clean medicine, uh, and they're able to hold their brand and hold their prices up. I think, you, you know following similar type things you have um, you know other similar type groups out there that have these uh, different um, standards for their product and I think that's going to be a way for people to really separate themselves from the pack and and allow craft growers to really excel when you have you know a lot of these bigger producers and especially later on when you have other countries when you have you know nations like Colombia and Zimbabwe and places that can grow for you know, much cheaper prices than than the United States is, you know, could ever grow for. I think you're still going to have a, a, a absolutely be able to compete. You know, right right there at a, at a really great price point, and you know, probably around that fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar, maybe even higher price point uh, per pound for that really craft cannabis because it's worth it, and, and and the inputs are there, and and if you don't, you know, you're not going to get that. A cheap pound that that's hand trimmed right like it's there's just certain things that just has a cost to it for the quality and and the same way with with, um uh you know fine wine or or any fine food you know you you pay for that higher quality and i really think that that's going to be you're going to have your craft growers that really separate themselves pretty quickly uh, and then you're going to have the kind of just you know general production for everything else you know
0: Yeah, certainly. And I would love to get a little more into the nitty gritty of that because I've had a lot of people message me over the past year or so and they kind of reference this idea you talk about and they're like, I would love to do that. I'm wondering what are some ways to do it. And the thing I would always reply with is, I always think that if you're trying to set yourself apart, one easy way to do it is to... Uh, get like a strain and find your own unique keeper of it ideally something that's not already in circulation maybe you even breed it yourself which that's you know a bit of a different discussion but what are some of the ways you think people can build a brand because i thought like unique strain maybe you know even unique cultivation style aquaponics What what do you think how can people help to establish themselves as a unique producer
1: Well, I would say definitely look at unique products if you have the ability or if you have a recipe for something that grandma made that was super awesome, make an infused version if it's something that's allowed in your state, you know, and and these types of things where you already have something unique, you just didn't think of using it in the cannabis realm or some other stuff. So, But in particular, uh, one one way that I work with a lot of companies is with aquaponics. And uh, in fact, there's a group right now I'm working with on a license application in Chicago where we're going to be donating 100% of our fish to the local community. So our cannabis facility is providing free food for the local community on top of all the medicine we're providing for our, for the patients within the community. So we're able to feed people. We also will set up uh, uh, with a lot of these aquaponics systems, we'll set up wicking beds on the outside because we do have to, um, you know, we can discharge a little bit from our filtration system if we're brewing and we make extra and we needed some place to put it without having to pay for disposal in places like California. We can set up wicking beds and just have a public garden out front and and grow vegetables for our community. Again, being more than just a cannabis a company, but being a pillar of the community that's giving back to the community, and you know, using the whole uh, converting greed into good, and, and 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 really bringing the whole message and the and the energy of cannabis. I mean, think about everyone listening to the show. How many times has funds that started with cannabis ended up creating and helping someone that you knew in in a, in a hard spot, or with car parts, or with rent, or with whatever? All of us did at some point. All, anyone that's in the cannabis industry started slinging eights or slinging grams. And that's why we're in this point. There's very few people that didn't get into it that way. Or if they did, they got into it late. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. if you got into it pre-legalization, that's what you did. All of us got started that way. Right. That's And then we got into growing and then we got into, you know, more and more and more. So. So th- this is really a way where we can give back to our community and, and do it as a byproduct. You know, those fish are providing fertilizer for us and we're able to just give them back to the community as a way to, to, to feed people. And again, that, that helps us with our story, helps us with our brand, helps us with our whole you know, eco, eco, not only eco responsible, but community responsible with our company.
0: Yeah, what, what a powerful message because I, I even had a question about that so we might even jump to it but whenever I discussed aquaponics with I've got a friend, let me let me clarify you you know the guy I'm trying to think of the real big aquaponics guy in Queensland in Australia
1: uh, Mr. Murray Hollum
0: Murray, so I got a good friend who has trained under him so he's quite knowledgeable and um, you know, first-hand knowledge from Murray and he said, he's interested in cannabis um, and he said that he always kind of struggled to see a big cultivation facility doing aquaponics purely for the sense that he was like, it just seems weird to have a store that sells fish and cannabis because he's like, that would be the end goal. Like you got fish and cannabis, you need to sell them both. I guess you've just provided a really nice alternative pathway to use those fish do you think that idea though that they raised is a legitimate sort of concern about like you've just got that you're ending up with these two different products or do you think we just need to look deeper like what you mentioned as to how we can utilize the resources?
1: So so there's kind of two pieces to that. So first off, uh, one of the other things that we've I've talked about with California producers is doing a cannabis infused smoked fish. So taking Taking the fish, doing fillets, and then doing a cannabis glaze, a flavored glaze, and then smoking it, and then doing it, selling that as a product. So you could actually have a very good. you know, a value added item with the cannabis and have the cannabis be the value added rather than, you know, so depending on how you wanna go with your business model, you could also raise tropical fish and flip those as well for profit. And that often can be much more profitable than raising food fit. And actually in almost all cases is more profitable than raising food fish. So if you're strictly focused on profits as a cannabis company, uh, you know, avoiding food fish altogether. Now the other component, and this is only an issue in the United States, is you cannot get a meat processing license, which you need to have to kill the fish and clean the fish, and a cannabis license because cannabis is still federally regulated as a schedule one drug. And the meat processing uh, facilities are all uh, inspected by federal inspectors from the USDA. They can't step foot into a facility that has schedule one drugs on the property and then they're just conflicting, right? So so you have this issue where I have to license a third party processor that's already licensed uh, where they come pick up the fish or I deliver the fish either live or, or frozen uh, whole on, frozen on ice and then have them clean them, you know, third party and to, to legally resell them. So that, that is a regulatory issue that is currently an issue in the United States because, because of the current federal law that people, it, it's kind of a weird thing that I'm sure no politician thought about as a weird buy, you know, it, it's an off weird thing, but it is a legal hurdle uh, for aquaponic cannabis facilities currently in the United States. Now in Kentucky, um, I actually helped, uh, um, The guys over at um, uh, one of the universities, uh, I don't know if they got the thing, but I helped write a a grant for, um, I believe it was Langston University, if memory recalls, uh, last year. But anyways, helped them write a a, a grant for a a truck, a processing truck, so that they'd be able to go around to the different aquaponic cannabis companies in Oklahoma, because Oklahoma currently has the most number of aquaponic cannabis licenses of any state in the United States right now, so uh, in terms of number of businesses. So. Um, uh, there, there's quite a few different companies that have adapted a couple, both, uh, existing facilities and then, you know, new built from scratch facilities, uh, in the Tulsa and Oklahoma area, as well as uh, Oklahoma city area, as well as further South where I am, um, that are all, uh, all doing cannabis now. And, um, yeah kind of lost my train
0: of thought there no that's just a a trail of knowledge we need to leave some cookie crumbs (laughs) um so i guess the question it raises for me is you you just paint such a beautiful picture with this do you anticipate that as the years go by we're going to see an increase in aquaponic cultivation or do you think that it's just one of those things where you know you're always going to have the people who want to do the rock wool and you're just never going to change their mind
1: Oh no, I think you're always going to have people that have their set system that works for them. And hey, if someone has a system that works for them and they're crushing it, why change it? Like, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, if you have, if you just kill it with soil or you kill it with hydro or you kill it with cocoa, like rock it, man. But I do think that, and having done lots of side-by-sides now and then consulted for lots of companies that paid me to do side-by-sides, um, we can crush the, I'm sorry about the pupper. I have a, a younger pupper that. Uh, uh, all
0: puppers are welcome.
1: A little bit younger we can edit that out. So um, so with aquaponics, we've managed to get significantly higher terpenes than all of our our hydro or soil uh, uh, controls across the board. We've had not a single test out of over 120 ever come back lower on the terpenes compared to uh, dual root zone aquaponic control. Um, Even non-dual root zone aquaponic controls. will will, about 75% of the time will be almost all but the best living soils. Um, and that's just through terpene and cannabinoid testing that we've done. Now, what we attribute it to is one of two things. Uh, either there's an endophyte, you know, certain endophytes that are colonizing the plant from the aquatic microbiome or the stimulation of having both the terrestrial and aquatic microbiomes or a combination thereof, of, but what I just said and this, um, uh, of having those two microbiomes, the terrestrial microbiome in the soil area and the upper half of the root zone and, and the aquatic layer in the lower half of the root zone with dual root zone pots allows you to have, you know, such an increase in biodiversity that, um, uh, you know, you get that increase in stimulation to the plant's immune system. And what does a plant do when it needs to defend itself and gets a plant's immune system stimulated, increases terpenes and depending on what the stimuli it is. So by increasing the number of non-pathogenic microbes to the root system, you can basically give it more vaccinations for, you know, a simplified uh, way of thinking about it and increase the total terpene production by giving an exposure to more microbes in a way that's not going to screw with it in a negative image. So that's, that really allows us to give us a huge advantage. The other big advantages that we have is we use around 18% uh, uh, with my methodology uh, uh, of water compared to many other uh, soil grown methods, you know, a drain to waste or most of your soil outdoor. And that's just gallons per day per plant uh, under a four month growth, uh, three to three and a half to four month growth cycle. So assuming you have a minor veg and then a, and then a quick flip. So, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, we've had really, really great luck with that. And then also increased acceleration of growth. So in veg, uh, we have no problem hitting the two to four inch a, a day mark uh, all day long with aquaponics. Uh, it's not even, we don't even have to try. Uh, it's just incredible how fast and anyone can go onto my YouTube and, and see for themselves time stamped videos of different farms. of have multiple farms on there that you can see, you know, incredible acceleration of growth. Um, but, uh, the, uh, the farm I was just working with here in, in Southern Oklahoma, we were averaging two to four inches of growth per day on all of our mother plants in the greenhouse. It was, you know, it's kind of goofy. It's, it's fun to, or it's not even, it's annoying to go back to soil. Cause you're like, this is like watching paint dry, you know, it's just so <laughs> slow. And then we were able to shave on flour anywhere from five to 14 days off the flowering cycle, uh, by increasing the speed of that as well, um, uh just in terms of, of speed of growth again we attribute that to increased gas exchange in the root system it really does make a big difference
0: wow yeah There's so many things we've got to talk about there i just want to quickly jump back because i'm a really big fan of when you were talking about the plant's immune system and the increased terpenes to assist with that what's your thoughts around the use of chitin based products as a I mean to do that and are you still able to utilize those in aquaponics
1: oh yeah in fact you asked a really awesome question. So um, I actually just did a trial of three different ba- chitinase-based treatments for insect control when I was over in Zimbabwe. So we did um, uh, a liquid uh, – so is, uh, are you familiar with IMO, or Indigenous yep. Microorganisms yep. from Korean Natural Farming? Okay, so so if you're familiar with that, what we do is um, we did one method where we took that and did uh, 30% insect frass and then 60% uh, percent, or 70% uh, rice, and then mixed that together, cooked it, and then did that as an IMO treatment for collecting the um, uh, microbes. And then we were able to collect uh, uh, chitinase feeding, you know, uh, microbes that would feed on the exoskeletons of the plants, or I'm sorry, the, the insects, not the plants, um, to defend the plants from mainly the biggest issue we we're dealing with is these large African grasshoppers. Um, they're, I don't, maybe they were locusts, but they were huge and they were, they were the biggest problem we had because they chew the bark off the plants. And they, they, that was the biggest issue is they'd chew the Cambrian layer off the plants. So, um, uh, that was the biggest problem we had. So the, the, um, the large grasshoppers would chew the, the cam- Cambrian layer off the plants and then the plants would, you know, basically the top. anything above that would start to die off. So we started spraying with that and that was by far the best treatment um, that we had for any of the things that we had. And we were able to kill the grasshoppers. It took a couple days to work, but one- once we were sprayed the plants and sprayed the ground and we were doing that once a week, um, it worked incredibly well. And we just made a liquid IMO from, from that, the same way that you would make liquid IMO from an IMO. Uh, 1 and you can get IMO 2. And then we also tried uh, uh, where we did the normal IMO collection and then introduced insect frass at the point of IMO 3 rather than at the point of IMO 1. And we found that while it did work, it did not work anywhere near as well. The the efficacy wasn't anywhere near as well. And then the other one we did is we did it with uh, IMO 4. And again, that was very similar to IMO-3. While it was, it did work, it didn't work as well as doing it at the IMO-1 stage. Um, So um, uh, with that, and then again, now you have a bunch of free chitinase that's available for the plants to absorb and, uh, you know, via the roots or any other way that it wants to, because you're just melting insects in your field. Uh, And that was one of the best general insect sprays. We were able to use that as our, one of our mainstays for our insect control over in Zimbabwe.
0: Yeah, wow. I mean, you know what? I think it's probably about time we jump into it. So, for anyone who hasn't quite picked up on it, you did a stint in Africa just fairly recently. Would you be able to give us a rundown on, I guess, how the opportunity just at least initially presented itself?
1: Sure. So, I've been working with a a couple of different groups out of Canada uh, for off and on for a couple of years. And, uh, one of the groups I'd worked with previously, uh, had a, uh, someone that was working with a different group over in Europe and Africa and, uh, started talking to them and, uh, they kind of needed someone, uh, that knew the ropes on the cannabis side of things to go over there and kind of train people up. So, uh, ended up getting together with them, it took a little bit longer to get the funding together, mostly because of the FDA rules that came in place, uh, back in October, was it, October 27th when the sky fell. So, um. Uh, Or whatever it was. (laughs) So that happened. And then anyways, ended up over in Africa in in December. So so I was over in Zimbabwe, or ended up over in Zimbabwe. uh, And then um, uh, we're getting everything going. We had 750 acres that we were prepping. We had about 15 acres that we had planted and ready to go. And then the virus hit. And everything stopped. And then I had about 72 hours to get out of the country if I was going to get out. Wow. So... uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was my stint. So uh, hopefully, when this all settles down next year, uh, probably the, I'll think you know we'll, we'll we'll figure it out. But right now, they harvested off what was there, and everything's on pause because I, it's 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 psychotic to try and move any products around the world right now. And trying to move cannabis is even harder. So it's just kind of a process it all and sit on it for now because financially, it's the only thing that makes sense on on the scale that we're doing it.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. And I mean, we're going to probably dig around this topic for a little while, but just to go back for a minute, you mentioned that things are on pause at the moment. I actually know a guy who's involved in um, general hydroponic stuff. And many years ago, he was contracted to go to Zimbabwe, I think just to grow some lettuces and things like that. And he set the operation up. sounds like kind of a similar situation to you. He felt confident he'd trained them up well enough and then he left and it was all going well for probably 6-12 months. And then after a while, it just started going really bad and um, he was getting emails about it and he's just like, oh, I don't know what's going on, but apparently it's starting to go really bad. And what it ended up happening was that the locals were just so kind of unfamiliar with um, – he was using salt-based nutrients in a pure hydroponic setup. But basically, what had happened was they had, were using like a part A and B nutrient and one of the a or the b had run out and they just didn't understand how it worked and so they were like oh we just use the a in replacement if we don't have any b and it just kind of highlighted that like it was such a foreign style of growing that they just they didn't fully understand it do you feel like that might be the case now that if you like that might be why things are on pause because there is still a bit of a learning gap for them to fully get autonomous with it
1: no no the, the reason why everything is on pause is because they're uh the value of their dollar is uh, <laughs> collapsed because yeah. of the virus. But uh, <laughs> sure. so that's, that's honestly, there. but um, the, the, the other reason, but as far as uh, agricultural stuff, um, they are incredibly learned with agricultural practices, especially organic agricultural practices. They, they are very good about uh, uh, doing a lot of, of stuff that we would consider similar to maybe natural farming. Uh, oh, uh, but um, uh, they also have a huge presence of Syngenta. Uh, if you go into, you um, or Monsanto, as you guys may also know them as um, uh, for the, you know, they, they, that's their other name. But in, in, if you go into Harari or any of the bigger areas, uh, Kadoma or uh, Vic Falls or anywhere, um, you're going to see Syngenta, Syngenta, Syngenta. And they sell all, they probably sell 85 to 90% of the seed in the whole country, um, which sucks. Yeah. Um, but that's probably the biggest issue is that it's hard to find. It's hard for farmers to find good seed. Now, the moment you get away from any of the big cities, it's all organic as can be they 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 don't they've never seen a pesticide they don't know what a pesticide is like it's fine right so it's just a matter, or they do but it's organic you know they're making ferments and stuff right it's not like or RTs or, or they're they're burning something you know a a, a smelly herb that, to to have the smoke waft through to get them up or, you know they have some other method it's not I, one thing i would say and it's funny cuz i had this conversation with somebody else Zimbabwe actually this week, um, just because of the current events in uh, in the United States is that I said, you know, if something were to happen with the government in Zimbabwe, everyone can just kind of farm, like everyone knows how to farm, everyone knows how to self sustain themselves from a survival standpoint, whereas in the United States, people don't, you know, a large percent of the United States doesn't even know how to plant a seed. And grow a bean or a tomato. You know, it's just not something that people are familiar with or been exposed to. So, um, whereas you, you know, a lot of these other parts of the world, yeah, maybe they don't have all the things that we have, but you know what? Everyone there can feed themselves if they have to, or you know, they 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 all have a garden. Every single person has a garden in their on their property. they they're growing food. You know, and it's culturally, you know. A lot different where there they are more self so sustaining in terms of food production. And you know, I, if I was gonna get stranded and, and something like that, you're gonna have more food in a place like that, even though it sounds kind of crazy. So
0: I, I think that probably a question a lot of a lot of our listeners are wondering is whereabouts in Zimbabwe were you based geographically and what type of strains did you found work really well there?
1: Sure. So we were growing a couple of different C B D cultivars in Kadoma. Um, I actually don't have the strain list in front of me. I have it. I posted it up on my Instagram. I have the exact strains that we were growing there. We were actually the first company to legally import them into Zimbabwe. Um, actually, funny story on that, which I'm sure the, uh, the the guys at the airport don't want me to tell you, but I'll tell you anyway, because it's funny. Um, <laughs> so we, we we get these seeds in, right? And it's like, uh, a big giant pack of seeds and like you can smell it, right? Cause they're fresh seeds, right? So they, they smell like terpenes. Like you, it smells like a fat old bag of weed and they open it up <laughs> and the cops are like, Whoa. And then they're like, can you do this? And then they want to see paperwork. And then they held it for a couple of extra days and, and checked with the ministry of health and all this other, sh- other crap. So so we finally get it cleared and then they come out and then so the the they have like the like the narc cops or like the drug cops there and they're laughing about it and they're like, Cool, well let's test the dogs, right? So they go and they grab the dogs and they bring the they put three packages out and the ours is one of them and the dogs completely ignore it and they get real mad and we're just sitting there laughing and then we realize like they're getting really they're they're getting more mad. So we just kind of like, Can we get the paper? Can we get the paperwork and get out of here now? Like we, it's time to go. <laughs>
0: like, it's not push the limits
1: but yeah
0: lovely so i mean in terms of zimbabwe were you more up north more down south or do you feel like the whole area is just pristine it doesn't matter where you are
1: sure so i was i, I spent so i did go out and visit in yango which is in the far east over by mozambique um but then i also um uh where my, the farms where i was working in was one is in morandera and the other one was in um north of Kadoma. I'm, I'm not going to give the exact location just for security reasons, but north of Kadoma. So um, it was probably the biggest large city nearby.
0: Do you feel like Zimbabwe in particular has a really nice sort of environment that's conducive to growing, or do you think that the end game is that like most African countries will just be set to go hard?
1: No, I think Zimbabwe particularly has a wonderful climate temperature-wise and humidity-wise and, and everything else and the soil is very conducive for it so
0: fantastic. And I mean, when you're there, have did you try to grow anything in the soil or was it all aquaponic?
1: So one one of the two farms I worked with was aquaponics and the other one was soil, so
0: Okay, cool. And what would be your recommendations for someone looking to work with some soil they've got that's never been like tended to, so to speak, and they're going to have to maybe put some inputs in? What are your go-to inputs that you might put into the soil to help give it some uh, nutrients?
1: So, um, oh man, it's really going to depend on what that soil is. So if there's a lot of, not a lot of organics in it, I would say, you know, making sure you can add a compost or some, you know, leaf mulch or something like that. Um, or, you know, it's really just going to depend on it. You know, my first thing would be get a soil test and find out what's going on in there and, you know, get some under a microscope slide so that you can see what the heck is going on.
0: Sure. I guess maybe one of the more commonly heard claims I hear is that uh, basically, uh, what is it, Uh, biochar and cover crop. I always hear those two things because it's like it makes sense in theory, right? Do you feel like that actually works in practicality?
1: So... (laughs) I've done a lot of testing with biochar. Um, I'm going to be an outlier and tell you, I think it's in 75 to 90% of people's farms, complete snake oil. I don't think it'll do anything. If you're doing good composting, good microbial inoculation, your KNF inputs, you are going to notice absolutely zero difference in yield, terpene content or cannabinoid content. And I say this because there's a a farm in Gilcrest, Colorado, that I've worked with. That we put together in 2013 or 2000 2013 and um couldn't remember if it was 13 or 14 um and so they have six acres of hemp there okay now there's half acre of uh, zero a uh, control half acre of one percent biochar half acre of control half acre of three percent biochar half acre of control half acre of five percent biochar and a full acre control that we were doing some other testing on um in all those years, we've had no difference in yield. The only difference we've noticed is the size of the cover crop uh, is larger where the higher amount of biochar is. So you could say that there's more microbial biodiversity in the surface of the soil. Strictly speaking, for CBD hemp, it has made no visible financial yield growing at a half-acre scale over all those years. So, and I can say that based on you know numerics and you know financials. So. Based on that, then yes, I, I think it's not now if you have a super compact clay or you have just really terrible soil or no organics at all, yeah, it's gonna do wonders for your soil. But if you're dosing with all your normal, you know, probiotics and your K and F inputs and everything else, it's not you're gonna you're already adding all the microbials and a lot of the other stuff that you have. You don't need an extra space for it to survive. So, you're not really adding a something that's not already being colonized happily. You're, you're, you're inoculating on top of – you're just adding a space for the inoculant. But if you're already adding the inoculant, it's kind of a redundant.
0: Sure. And just as a sort of a random curiosity for myself, do you feel like the microbial diversity there is plentiful enough that you don't need to supplement with any sort of microbial product that would might be like more external or even something like say a mycorrhiza.
1: Uh, it really depends on what you're doing. Um, I prefer to still do some some external inoculants. Um, I've found in aquaponics, just in terms of products, Mammoth P is probably been one of the biggest in terms of uh, amount of testable in PPMs uh, available of a nutrient from any microbial I've ever tested with aquaponics, it is the one that has increased it, any nutrient by the, the largest amount by by not adding any additional salt, right? So by not adding any physical phosphorus just by adding the micro- microbe, it is increased phosphorus on average around 30 to 35% in, on aquaponics systems. So if you can get that established and get those microbes in your system, it's a great inoculant. I often recommend that and recharge uh, from, from uh, real growers over at uh, the guys that do do grows, um, we often recommend both of those for people inoculating their new aquaponics systems to get those Bactillus species as nitrifying bacteria, those those, those initial um, mycorrhizal protectants. You know, something that's going to get in there and, and outcompete Pythium and root rot and a lot of the other issues you have with with aquatic-based systems, be it aquaponics or hydroponics.
0: Yeah! Wow! What a what a powerful testament to the product. So. If we get into the nitty gritty of the aquaponics itself, what sort of things are you feeding the fish and supplementing the system with and do you still have to use any... Because I, I think I remember I spoke with you maybe a while ago and you mentioned that uh, like iron can sometimes be hard to find, you might need to supplement with it. Have you found workarounds for those things or it's still like, you know, there's certain principles that still apply?
1: So, um, regardless of what you're doing with aquaponics, you know, fish waste is not microbially, or um, not microbially, chemically designed to grow plants, right? Like, that was never part of the plan with that. So, um, fish waste does not provide everything. It will provide the vast majority. So, we can get anywhere, depending on cultivar, 80 to 90% of the nutrients that we need for feeding uh you know for almost any cannabis cultivar uh is going to fall into that range from the base nutrient now we will need to supplement potassium calcium uh, iron and some micronutrients depending on the cultivar now certain cultivars will really plow through molybdenum and zinc and a couple of your micronutrients other ones don't it seems to be more predominantly on the ones that are more colorful your purples and your oranges and they seem to especially molybdenum they plow through it because they need it for the anthocyanin production uh, so, uh, and, and anyone that doesn't know if you're having problems with your purples not being purple, add some molybdenum, uh, sodium molybdenate uh, at a, like a 0.1 part per million dosage. It'll, it'll immediately turn your plants purple if they have the genetics for it. Again, it has to do it, and you got to trigger the gene. But uh, plants will also create extra anthocyanin to bind up a mild molybdenum toxicity. So you can actually force the plants, if it has it, to produce extra anthocyanin via a forced mild quote. You know, again, mild molybdenum toxicity. (laughs) Uh, You go too hard, you're going to cause other problems with your nitrogen. But you know, that's a whole separate discussion. But uh, uh, um, but for purples, you know, definitely so. Uh, and silica so I've done a ton of side-by-side testing with silica and we did silica testing um, and what actually uh, we'll start off at the beginning and why we started looking at silica with aquaponics was uh, specifically was uh, there was a gentleman I can't remember his name at a boulder when I used to work at the aquaponics source I used to work and help we we had a whole plant team and a product team and, and everything and we had different things that we worked on and developed well, the plant team was trying to figure out why our aquaponic tomatoes always tasted slightly different than the, than the hydroponic or soil tomatoes. So we went and had them tissue sampled, and uh, sure enough, it was silica and chloride were the two things that were missing, which was very strange. Um, and this was before we learned about flavonoid testing and all that. We were looking at this more from a nutrient kind of perspective before, uh, you know, Anyways, uh, I was a little bit greener on the trying to fine tune this on the on the plant side of things. I wasn't thinking cannabis mindset with the vegetables. You know what I mean? Um, so, anyways, so. Uh, so um, the issue. Uh, so what we did was we tested that and noticed the silica and the chloride. So what we did was we upped the silica, we upped the chloride, and we had an, a, a huge increase in uh, not only yield above about fifteen to twenty percent, but we also had a in, reduction in powdery mildew and molds, and we also had a reduction in um, uh, we also had a reduction in uh, issues with um, uh, uh, crispness. So if we harvested lettuce and put it in the fridge, we were able to get anywhere from five to eight additional days in the fridge where it's, you know, before it started to wilt and look like crap. Um, so we were also, you know, and other things like powdery mildew and cucumbers and we, and, and, um, uh, the, uh, total, um, um, failure rate of flowers on cucumbers were also increased by increasing silica as well. And it seems to be a threshold around um, uh, 60 parts per million in, in aquaponics, uh, really seems to be that minimum threshold, at least for most crops, and then cannabis seems to be a little bit higher than that. But um, but in general, that, that, that's some of the different rabbit holes that I've had the pleasure of jumping down with, with some of the different groups that I've worked with.
0: Yeah, wow, very, very detailed analysis of what's necessary there. The question I've always been wondering is, do you think that even with the use of aquaponics, if you're in somewhere like Zimbabwe, you could still get some sort of terroir or do you think it, just, it probably has to be in the ground to sort of do that?
1: Well, so I do think, and I, and I so I am two minds in this. So one, you're not, I wouldn't qualify it. I wouldn't go in with an aquaponic system into Humboldt and say, it's a Humboldt terroir, right? Like that's, it's not going to have the, the microbes and the flavors from the ground. What I would say is that you could make a good argument that aquaponics is its own terrar because it is its own root biome that is completely unique. Now, you will have unique to different climates, and you could say maybe, you know, certain things, and you could absolutely develop something similar because, again, your your microbial biodiversity, and, and it's funny you mentioned that NASA did a study. A couple of years ago, and I was working with a vegetable farm that participated in this and they did DNA studies on trying to see, okay, well, what are all the mineralizing microbes? If we went to Mars or someplace like that, what's the pack of microbes we need to bring to aquatically mineralize either human waste or animal waste or whatever we're going to do for fertilizer? So, so whatever, you know, biological waste that we're going to process into plant food what packet of microbes do we need so they tested all manner of soil microbes and aquatic microbes and they had some cool results so one of the things they found was is that the the most or the least biodiverse aquaponic system was um, 168% more biodiverse than the most biodiverse soil system they tested in terms of microbial species count so they they aqu- the aquatic biome just slaughtered it but if you think about it the aquatic microbiome has had an extra billion years to evolve so, of course, that makes sense, right? That, that's a no-brainer. So, uh, that was really interesting. And then also, uh, they, they found that, you know, none of the aquatic tests had the same microbes. You had radically different chains of microbes that were mineralizing the same minerals in completely different chains. Some of them were two, some of them were up to eight, and, and everything in between. And, and, and each, each one of them was different. There was no universal. And that was, I think, one of the even trippier things is that you have all these different ways that this is co-evolved around the planet to mineralize XYZ minerals a thousand different times. So who knows? You know, there, it's such a big rabbit hole and no one's looking at it for aquatic mineralization. It, it's, there's billions of dollars in ag tech sitting there on the table and, and no one's even looking at it. You know, it, it's really a huge, if someone out there is listening to this and wants a gold mine, there you go. <laughs> you know, pick pick pick. Literally, any microbial chain, and seventy eight percent of them will live in a terrestrial microbiome. So, seventy eight percent of those microbes that you can hunt for will live in both soil and aquatic. So, it's it's an area that needs a ton of research. It needs lots of university students doing lots of papers. It needs all of those things.
0: Wow, yeah, that's almost like a goldmine of papers you could put out on that subject. I guess I then start to think. What would be, in your mind, the most optimal end goal for these producers in Africa? Do you think that it's going to get probably turned to oil or do you think that the flour could become of good enough quality that it gets imported into more kind of uh, expensive Western sort of countries as a generalization? Or what, what do you think is the ideal end goal for these African countries such as Zimbabwe?
1: I think really their bulk goal is to do bulk isolate production, doing oils that are separated out. Um, they're not, again, they're not going to compete for quality. The, they can compete for scale. You know, the, the cost of labor there is very cheap. Um, your average person there makes eight to $12,000 a year. Most of them are closer to eight or less. Um, just to give you an idea, of people in Zimbabwe, in terms of US per, money per year, uh, and that's, you know, middle class. So um, do the math on how cheap some of these people are living per year or per day you know it's you know something that neither you or i could are capable of doing that's for sure um and um but um uh definitely something where i think that you're gonna have you know these low labor costs are gonna end up being a player in the market long term where what are you gonna do when someone can bring over shipping containers of stuff that's being produced for eighteen dollars a pound or twelve dollars a pound you know uh, if you're competing, you know what they what they will do is drive out the Aurora, drive out the Canopy, drive out the 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 Budweiser, drive out the Marlboro and the Philip Morris. That they'll drive all those guys out. You know what I mean? And and I'm okay with that. You know, we we all the craft growers that listen, most of the craft growers that listen to the show. They're not competing with them anyway. They're they're not even on the same league.
0: So, yeah. So, I've actually heard of some other people who've done some stuff down in Africa, like most notably uh, Gene Finder has done some stuff. And I'd even heard some rumors, I think it might have even been put out by, of all people, Chimera, that um, like the Philip Morrisons are interested in looking into Africa. Did you see any other people or other operations down there looking to do anything like that?
1: Oh, yeah. And actually, the, the I guess what I would say is the most concerning is you have, uh, there's a, a Chinese uh, uh, group that's kind of moving into Africa that wants to kind of push into the cannabis market. And they're trying really hard to find genetics. They don't have genetics. They were desperately trying to talk to anyone Westerner for genetics. They wanted to desperately buy anything that I had. Um, that, that seemed to be the thing that they didn't have. Um, but they are setting up some big operations over there and, you know, who knows what they're going to do the, to the, the price points in the industry. I mean, they already have completely collapsed the fiber market and the oil market, you know, price point wise to make it really hard to compete. So, um, let's hope that they don't try to move in on the other stuff. But again, they're still never going to compete with the craft growers. You're not going to, the people that are going to go, you know, that are buying high quality stuff right now are not going to ever look at that anyway. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah, of course. And so, I guess my next question, although for you it would be specific to Zimbabwe, but I think you could broadly apply it to anyone who's going to a a kind of an area where, like, there is cheaper labor and they're looking to set up a bigger operation. Do you think in that sort of general situation you would look to bring in some genetics, like what you just mentioned, or do you think that it might be more wise to work with any pre-existing cultivars that might be there?
1: No. So, I actually, I, well... Uh, I I have access and have some some wonderful Zimbabwean cultivars I picked up in Nanyanga, but they are not heavy yielders. They're, they're not commercially viable stuff. You, if you're growing on a commercial scale, and if I'm growing and setting up for someone as a, a consulting client, I'm setting it up as a resin factory, and it needs to pump resin out. I don't care about... Anything other than that, you know, we're, we're we're trying to pump flour and pump resin. You know that that's what we're doing. It needs to turn over quickly. It needs to be resistant to most things. It needs to not be a pain in my ass to grow. It needs not to have some whack ass feeding schedule that's going to make me pull my hair out or some other baby thing that that particular strain is is going to annoy the crap out of me about. That everyone you know, everyone has a strain they love, but it does this X Y Z weird thing if you don't do it right. Right. So um, try to avoid all that stuff and just get to something that's easy, consistent. That people that aren't on the same skill level as me can can pump out and run and, and and it doesn't matter what i can do it matters what the guys i train that I leave behind can do and that's the thing i think that a lot of people set themselves up for is that anybody that's high skill level can come into anywhere and crush it and and get the place back on am online it's can you train the guys and then leave them with a coloring book simple methodology that they can follow after that 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 they can succeed with and that's really i think an area where um you know it's hard to, because there isn't a lot of agricultural education in Africa in local languages. Uh, In fact, there's almost nothing in agriculture stuff in Shona, which is the native language in Zimbabwe. It's really hard to find even plant names and stuff like that. When I was trying to research plant names and pathogens and, and pests, it was hard for me to look up that in Shona or English, right? Like there's just nothing. They just, it's all verbal. Like a lot of African stuff is just verbal, right? They just don't there's not a lot of documentation or there isn't like the language isn't there for that type of long-term documentation for lack of a better word with, with the languages, right. For, for our specific craft, it just hasn't been developed yet. There's no word for terpene or cannabinoid or it just, it, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's almost yeah. like with the, with like the people that um, uh, I know uh, uh, was it uh Oregon, PDX. Uh, um, oh, why I blanking out on her name right now. Uh, uh, Jared and Angela uh, pranks that are working on the the sign language for the cannabis. Um, it's, it's almost like that. They don't have the language for our industry in the African languages, so some conversations are hard to have. Yeah. Just, just trying to explain things on a basic level when they don't even understand. Even if they understand English, I just went over their head. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: then you know and and then also just trying to make sure that like when you're trying to find seeds or if you are trying to acquire anything that like it can be quite the quite the hectic thing to do and, and quite the long journey to get to the farm or you know you might have to i don't know jump on one leg and rub your belly to, to get them to believe that you're not a cop and all kinds of other goofy stuff but generally when you have waist-length dreads it gets you by most of that
0: <laughs> oh, i like that and you you bring up a very valid point you know like we both need to have the same lexicon otherwise we can't really talk can we but just to jump back to one of the previous points if you're willing to what sort of genetics did you take with you that you thought would do well there and long term do you think that down the track people will breed stuff specifically for that area
1: sure so so the stuff that i specifically brought was durban uh, and then i brought some uh, reunion island seeds <laughs> which uh oh, the old uh, zamal mall yeah, yeah i love it um so because uh, they're damn near there it's very close latitude wise to where we were it was not far off a lot so i figured hey if it's gonna work uh and get me the that that weird gene expression with the continuous flower i i need to grow it you know at that same latitude you know as close to that latitude as i can and hey if i'm gonna be in zimbabwe hey let's go for it right i'm gonna yeah. be there so um uh, and then um, what was the other one? Uh, G13 hash plant from Dragonfly Earth Medicine was the other one that found its way over there, allegedly. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, that's the other one that uh, was the, the, the THC cultivars that we brought over. Um, we had some other stuff that, uh, again, I have it written down on the post. I'd ha- I don't remember what the other stuff was, but those are the ones that I brought over personally for my own smoke.
0: Sure, and I mean, to me, the the first two you mentioned, the Durban and the Zamal, sounds like pretty clear winners. You can understand why it's going to work well. I am curious to know, did the G thirteen hash plant just freak
1: out, or it handled it pretty reasonably well? Considering, no, it it loved it. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) all of them did great. I mean, and I and I specific, I knew it was a pretty. It's a pretty sativa leaning plant, and it. I just, it's my favorite thing to smoke all day long. If I'm going to smoke one plant, all the rest of my days. Uh, ever since last April when I was first introduced to that cultivar it, it's got its claws into me so yeah it's thanks Josh and Kelly
0: yeah it's a beautiful plan I think I've been lucky enough to try some of that same cut and yeah very special stuff so the next question I guess I was interested in is that we're hearing a lot of talk these days about how there's kind of this detrimental, I don't know if detrimental is the right word, but people comment about how we see a lot of hemp sprayed with distillate and it's getting passed off. Do you think that's, that is a bit of a risk with the massive influx of cheap distillate coming into the market long term? Or do you think that's more of just like a short term thing and people will catch out how, like, you know, they'll learn to pick up on it and just stop buying it?
1: No, I mean, I think it's definitely a problem. I think it'll definitely become a problem, especially international stuff where it's a lot easier to hide it on bigger batches. Um, but I mean, shit, I, I can remember a lot years and years ago seeing people spraying garbage weed with terpenes in California, you know, as soon as they were, as soon as uh river was a blue river. What was it? Blue river, or what was it, river, blue river terpenes? Yeah, or yeah,
0: it came out with blue dream. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And as soon as they came out with those terpene vials, man, it was all over like like that's as soon as people started doing the isolated terps and spraying it i can remember seeing i know (laughs) i was where i went and had a guy i was consulting for in san diego and he comes up to me with this bag of white moldy like very clearly pm covered weed he thought it was awesome because he thought it was frosty and he had never seen pm before and it was sprayed with terps to hide the the boy high school locker room smell yeah and he, it, dude, we, I about fell out of my chair laughing because this dude had paid like three grand or some shit for some moldy ass weed.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. I guess it is a, it's a real risk factor, isn't it? But I mean, it brings us on to the more valid question, which is what do you think will be kind of the next step with distillates? Where do you, what sort of products do you think will be utilizing this more cheaper distillate? Do you think pens is going to be just, you know, it's just full steam ahead or where do you see things going?
1: Well, the pen market is rapidly changing because um, you have all the, one, we don't know, well, the pen market's interesting because you have terpenes that are highly regulated in Europe in an isolated form that are not regulated in a blended cannabis form, which at some point is going to have to have some type of legal reckoning and at least in the EU market and probably on the wider international market. Um, And then you have, um, uh, you know, pens are popular, but again, you have the coils that depending on quality can be a health hazard. You have, you know depending on the blend with the terpenes can again be a health hazard so but people love them the the pens are one of the most popular things out here edibles are also super popular and cooking oil is super popular here in Oklahoma those three are are about 65% of the market because it's a lot of older people they they want to be able to dose themselves and they want something that's not a little more discreet and not you know chiefing out the neighborhood you know what i mean
0: yeah certainly and i mean it raises a really personal point to me because I've actually uh, I've I've cut down my usage quite a bit over the past year, and I'm I'm perfectly happy with that. And it's made me realise when I go have a hit of some of the strains I used to be puffing on all day, it it sends me flying, and so I can totally empathise with older guys who are like, oh, I just want something that tastes good and doesn't destroy me. Do you think that this will become a growing? kind of demand in the market and eventually we'll almost see like a a divergence of strains where there's like the everyday stoner strains and then the more casual guy ones because being in that more casual sort of like, let me just put it this way, if someone gives me some weed and and it's strong and I hit it, man, I'm just, my day has gone.
1: Yeah, no. And it's funny. Um, you mentioned that I, I was in the Colorado market when that first legalized in wreck. And you know what? One of the highest sellers uh, was the first two years was the rookie cookie, which was a five milligram cookie, oh. five milligrams. Right. So think about that. You know, so there's a huge market. I would probably say it's 30, you know, an enormous percentage of the market of people that are their weekend warriors, the people that haven't smoked in 20 years or whatever, and they, they don't want to get obliterated and they don't know how to dose themselves. Like uh, 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 with a joint or a bong, or certainly not with dabs, right? So, so <laughs> uh, they need a way that they can dose themselves. So, uh, you know, I've worked with a bunch of different technologies that we'll be bringing to market later this year that help with that. Um, that uh, we're not ready to release publicly yet, but um, uh, I have a new facility that we're we're pretty close to getting ready here in Oklahoma. Uh, In the next couple of weeks, that will in in August we'll have some announcements about. But um, we have a couple of different versions of stuff that allow us to adjust the potency and maintain the terpenes, and a couple of other cool things that'll uh, allow us to um, give some more rookie versions. But uh, of of those types of products, but I do think you are going to see a huge demand for those, you know, more lower potency products because again, that really is the vast majority the the people that dab all day and the people that smoke lots of blunts and joints and you know a lot of the people that grow use it pretty heavily right but we're not the majority of users we're we're, we're probably you know we're five ten percent of the market you know we're, we're a very small minority uh, of the overall cannabis market so we need to all remember that and i think a lot of us forget that because we get so used to the dab culture and everything that uh you know we forget that most people just smoke joints on on weekends right so <laughs> or after work you know
0: yeah totally totally and i mean it's interesting you raised the point about the rookie cookie because my next question to you is going to be do you think there are any major leaps to be made in the edibles field or do you think it's simply just about making it taste better and less like weed or do you think there's like some next generation like leap that might happen that makes it even better
1: oh yeah there's a ton of advancements in bioavailability that are not being exploited right now in the market um uh, without getting into specifics and getting myself into trouble, there's a bunch of different ways that you can rapidly increase the, the potency of, of cannabis and sometimes, you know, 5x uh, in efficacy or even more uh, you know, by changing some variables and, and changing the way that your body looks and uptakes the, the molecules, be it CB1 or CB2 receptor or some of the others. Um, you can get down some pretty cool rabbit holes um, again without getting myself into trouble uh, with NDAs that I've signed.
0: <laughs> yeah, we won't we won't uh, go too far in that direction. But that's that's definitely some cookies for people to go follow up on them. Yeah, if they're so interested. So, on the topic of edibles, I was interested in picking your brain. Do you feel like there's any difference in the quality of edibles produced? In terms of the strains used, and I don't just mean like in terms of the yield you might get back, but do you think a certain strain makes a better edible, or it's it it's a processed it's so processed to the point that you kind of lose that sort of originality of the strain it came from originally.
1: Uh, so I think there's a, it's kind of a two part question. So uh, first part I would say is is that one terpenes absolutely are going to have an enormous impact on the efficacy of your um, um, you know, medicinal value of of your edibles, the same way that they do for smokables. Um, uh, you know, let's just take example, seizure medications. Okay. So if you have CBD, okay. And I have, um, and I treat someone with CBD and they don't respond. Okay. You, there's certain, um, uh, cannabinoids, I'm sorry, certain terpenes that you can combine with CBD. I don't remember the exact ones, but I know that, um, uh, uh, what's his name House of Harlequin uh, Wade laughter um, he he talked about it extensively when he was on my show uh, I believe it was episode 140 of, of the growing with fishes podcast if you want to know exactly um, he talks about the specific terpene groups in that episode, but um, uh, uh, there are certain terpenes that actually will help dramatically suppress cannab- uh, seizures when taken with CBD, but there's other ones that will antagonize them. So if you take pinene and terpenylene and, and beta-carophyllene, those are hyperstimulative terpenes. You do not want those as a seizure patient. You want to avoid those explicitly because they can induce seizures. So you might have someone that has a CBD cultivar that's high in those, that's not not getting relief from their seizures or even having them induced by them. Um, Whereas you take that same patient and give them a CBD cultivar with those different sets of terpenes and and absolutely, you know, have efficacy with that product. So, so that's absolutely a thing. Now um, one thing that I I found that, and this is goes back to when I was first doing this back old school uh, uh, in the free people's market was um, uh, doing decarboxylation in sealed vessels. So we would do it in mason jars or in a pressure cooker or some kind of other sealed thing. And initially we did it was to see, basically to not let the whole neighborhood or apartment complex know that we're cooking, right? Um, It's kind of a problem if I'm making a big batch, you know, everyone knows in the neighborhood, you know, my house smells great. Well, when you're in a less than legal area, that can be a very big problem, depending on who your neighbors are. So we originally did that, but what we realized was we were trapping the terpenes in, so we, we, so the method that I prefer to decarboxylate, if you're decarboxylating flour for those at home that are, are, are making their own edibles, is take, take your flour, dry it out, and then fill your mason jars up about 50% of the way, and then put them in the oven. Uh, and and cook them at about 240 degrees for, you know, uh, one hour. And, and that'll decarboxylate your stuff really, really, really well. And then it'll also trap those terpenes in and also won't stink your house up or very, you know, you'll be, it'll smell maybe like you're smoking a joint. Like you'll know that there's weed there, but it's not, you're not going to bomb the house out. Right. Um, so then you take those and put them in the fridge. And what that's going to do is Cool and condense the, any of the, the compounds that were turned into a gas, mainly your terpenes, allow them to recondense back onto the plant material and, and, and come back out of the gaseous form. Well, that means that when I take that and now uh, use that for making my edibles, that that's now rebound back up on the plant material. Or what I prefer to do is I'll take that, that half of decarboxylated jar and I'll fill it two thirds of the way with, with my oil or, or butter or whatever I want to infuse. And I'll throw that in a pressure cooker and we'll, we'll pressure infuse that and, and, and decarboxylate that uh, or, you know, and, and we'll decarboxylate it first and then we'll, we'll pressure infuse it for, you know, 30 to 40 minutes uh, in a pressure cooker. Uh, you know, five to 10 psi, real low psi, real, real low. Uh, and, and, you know, just enough to, to get that pressure on the jar and, and then and then take those out and then take that strain it. Now I have my infused oil. And that's, that's one of the easiest ways for people at home to make high quality, high potency decarboxylated oil. And you don't have to use a pressure cooker, but it does help. Uh, what, what, what One thing I did want to add to that, don't do the butter or oil and then put them in the jar. If you don't have a pressure cooker, they will explode in the oven. Um, if you're going to do that method with a jar infusion, you do have to put it in a pressure cooker. You have to have even pressure on the outside and inside. Otherwise, they will explode just as a safety thing.
0: Yeah, very valid point. So, if we just jump back to the Africa stuff for a minute, I just wanted to touch on a topic you mentioned way back, but I, I put a little dot because I wanted to come back to it. Is You were talking about how with your aquaponics system, you could get away with, I think you said about 18% of the water usage as some other sort of methods. And it immediately made me think for, for somewhere like Africa or anywhere where there's like a water scarcity, that's got to be one of the determining factors in terms of the system you use. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, places like island nations in the Caribbean, uh, Australia, uh, Africa, uh, particularly island nations, because they don't have a big water supply. Uh, I know there's a, there's a gentleman who does. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of his farm, but he's in Barbados that that is now also doing cannabis. But he was doing vegetables for a long time, and it, it, he was doing it because they, their their entire total gallonage of fresh water on the whole island is very limited. They only get so much rain and that's all the fresh water they have unless they bring it in or, or desalinate. So, um, you know, having an area that, that especially when they're hyper limited on that and and cutting that down can be a, a great way to, you know, reduce the, the water per crop yield. And, you know, you can even further reduce it if you're in extreme measures. Now, I don't recommend this for commercial cannabis production because the liability of if your indexing valve fails, you can lose five rows of cannabis in a couple of hours. Um, but uh, if you're doing it for vegetable production and you're willing to ha- to gamble that or have someone that's just actively inspecting them every few hours, which you can do when labor costs are cheap, obviously, um, uh, and then um, <clears throat> uh, you, you can do that with with indexing valves where I can run just enough water to do one trough and the sump to, to, to take that back in and I can run four or six troughs of, of plants uh, you know, whoever length, uh, uh, off of one body of water. And you can get extremely low in terms of total water volume for a large amount of plants, uh, uh and, 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 you know, per run uh, in extreme cases. And we've done vegetable production that way in Jamaica. And then, uh, some cannabis with that methodology, again, I try to avoid it with cannabis because it's too much of a liability. If I have an equipment failure, I just lost a greenhouse. And, you know, if you, you do not ever want to explain that to someone you're working for, because it's not going to go well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can I can certainly imagine that conversation. In terms of when they've finished growing the product and they're going to harvest it, they're going to dry it, and they're going to process it, what sort of things happen there? Do we see the sort of drying techniques you might see on, say, um, Mr. Nice's Instagram feed where there's like these crazy warehouses just with… Tons of biomass just all drying out. Is it like that or is it a bit more like out in the sun? How do they dry and process and manage all of the biomass once it's grown?
1: Uh, Are you talking in Africa?
0: Yeah, apologies. Yeah, in Africa.
1: Sure. So in Africa, remember, Zimbabwe was the tobacco capital of the planet. So tobacco, it has this enormous tobacco um, infrastructure. So they have these huge brick tobacco barns that are you know, an acre, two, three, sometimes four acres in size that are that are you know basically just um, uh, corrugated steel and brick, and you know some local wood to, to timber them up. Uh, and, and there's huge bays, and they have these furnaces on the end where they heat them up, and they run warm air through them to heat the tobacco. So, they're they're basically taking those and you know cleaning them up. Uh, running ozone through them so they can uh, uh, kill all the bad microbes or anything that might be living in there to to sterilize them and then uh, converting those into cannabis drying barns and at least on a large scale I've seen three separate farms in Zimbabwe I had a chance to visit some of our competitors not competitors but other producers I guess is probably the better way to put it in Zimbabwe and they were all all of us included all of us were using you know old tobacco properties because they have the, uh, the well infrastructure they have the irrigation infrastructure they have the water reservoirs and they have the tobacco drying, bar- you know, the, the drying barns. They have the the, the the tractor buildings that we can use for, you know, extraction and everything else. So it has kind of the pre-built infrastructure or at least the, the framework for a pre-built infrastructure that, you know, maybe it needs to be brought up to code. Maybe I need to, you know, update things in terms of modernization. But, you know, 80% of what I need is already there.
0: Yeah, wow. And in terms of the processing, does it take place in Africa or does it go somewhere else? How do they do that part?
1: So, so uh, almost, it's interesting, uh, there's a couple of ways that that it happens from African countries. So one way that it happens is they'll take it, dry it and ship it out as dry biomass. Another way that they'll do it is take it and separate the oil and then sell that in basically 55 gallon drums of of oil or 30 gallon drums of oil or whatever. The other way that they'll do it is um they'll take it they'll dry it say f- down to 35 40 or 35 percent then they'll ship it to Australia and dry it five more percent and now it's processed in Australia and now it can qualify for Australian GMP and and thusly EU GMP and backdoor into the EU so you have a lot of companies that are producing in you know, other parts of the world, be it South America or Africa that are backdooring it into the EU market via Australia. And I don't know how long that door is going to last, but at least currently that that's a way that some of the larger companies are doing it. And I, you know, again, I haven't moved anything since February, January, February. So that could have changed. You know, I don't quote me on that and say that I was wrong if, if that's changed since then, but um, that was how it operated up until, you know, Things started getting crazy over there in Africa, and I came back in April. So,
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, all comments taken in good faith. You mentioned earlier, and I wanted to specifically ask about this, the price of the oil, it's astronomically low. I think I heard before we even chatted a few months back, someone quoted something like $200 a gallon or just something which just blew your mind open. What do you think that's going to do to the global kind of pricing? And is it like, what is the price? Like what's the going price over there?
1: Uh, so I don't, I don't know what the current price in Africa is. Um, we were all looking at that refining it into internet, mostly European markets um, without getting into specifics that may or may not get me in trouble, but um, that, that was all, all going into European markets. So I, I could tell you what that price was, but I don't know what, you know, what the the low ball stuff that you're seeing out of there's a big company out of Lesotho and a couple other places. Um I also know that we originally wanted to get launched in South Africa and then South Africa started randomly arresting producers that were legally licensed that were not violating anything. Um so we got real sketched out about throwing a bunch of money down there and I certainly don't want to spend any time in a South African jail. So definitely um Uh, I hear it's not a very good place to be. So, uh, uh, we, we decided to move up to Zimbabwe where it was a little more stable. And then now that's happened. Things have gotten a little bit, uh, a little bit more interesting in Zimbabwe than they were when I was there. And, uh, so we'll kind of see how it all works out. Uh, we kind of have some different assets in different African countries. So, and that was kind of the plan too. We kind of know that if you're going to get involved in Africa, mm, Africa doesn't always have the best stability when it comes to government and regulations so you kind of have to diversify across a couple countries and have you know kind of one export company that can kind of conglomerate the uh output of those different countries into you know set contracts for for different different people internationally so that's kind of the easier way to operate over there and doesn't matter what type of agricultural crop if we're doing you know maize or corn or or whatever you know Or cannabis, it it, you know all of them pretty much operate that way by diversifying across nations because again, it just changes too often over there. Yeah,
0: sure, sure. And so, just to go back to yet another point you mentioned much earlier, you said that you did come across some of the more indigenous cultivars, the land races, but they just weren't suitable for what you needed. The ones you did come across, did you feel like they were likely affected genetically by some modern form, or they were likely untouched?
1: Well, I look, I look forward to bulking them out and, and giving out a bunch of seeds for people to, to tell me. Uh, uh, that's actually one of the plans I'm working with a, a Mr. Green Jeans Garden in, in, uh, in California to bulk out a bunch of those um, uh, so that we have those available for people to give out. But I found that they are incredibly high in pinene. It's like smoking a pine tree. I think that was the thing I instantly noticed. And then the, the cerebral high that I don't remember having since I was maybe a teenager you know, just a a mind-blowing cerebral sativa high that it was intoxicating and just I haven't had in just such a long time and it just was, I just, I missed it and I forgot that I missed it.
0: Hell yeah. I mean, as a lover of sativas myself, that sounds beautiful. In terms of the, the local population, the local culture, what's cannabis consumption like over there? Do people generally grow and smoke it or it's just not really used?
1: So, so uh, cannabis is a very hush-hush uh, thing. It can get you... Well, the locals can get seven to nine years in jail. So they generally uh, don't share it very often. Um, but you will find that like in private... Well, okay, let me make sure I don't get myself any, or anybody else in trouble. In private areas and private clubs and things like that, it is fairly well tolerated. I've, I've smoked in public quite a few times. But again, it was gated public, right? Like it was not... Not like you had to pay to get in, but like it was on like a balcony or it was like in a courtyard, an area where you kind of had to get, you know, go into the bar and back out the back. You know, it was kind of a off on the side kind of thing, kind of off, maybe kind of the way it used to be in Canada before 2004. Maybe anyone that that remembers those days where it was accepted, but kind of like keep it on the DL. You know what I mean? Maybe not so much BC, but certainly more towards the Quebec side of things. Um uh kind of kind of in that vein. So um, but out in the country, like we you know, shit, we smoked all the time, like it was no big deal. But um, and then out with the Rasta, so there's a lot of Rastafari and they smoke and chief up, and that's you know, obviously anywhere near them you're gonna have a cloud, right? So but but uh but in general, culturally speaking, it's not very uh popular except for like at the bars. Like you go to a bar and and it has a courtyard outside, you'll you'll smell it. Right. But it'll often be like stuff that like Mexican brickweed people wouldn't buy. Right. It's going to be something that like looks like pine needles and it's like probably 80% leaves. And maybe there might be like a little bit of maybe 0.1 to 0.2 grams out of a gram is an actual bud. And then maybe like 0.3 grams of that seeds. And then like the rest is like leaves or like some other part of the plant that's in there. So, and then that's on the low end and then all the way up to stuff that would compare with like Cali stuff, like, like really good, high quality. Like some of the people over there are taking notes and watching YouTube and listening to podcasts and there, I mean, it show, you know, instantly you can tell who, who's paying attention to, to education and who, who knows what a sense Amelia is and all that. And who doesn't, because, you know, <laughs> one, one is bushweed and one is a uh, something that looks like it came from a store here, you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, and that's that's so promising to hear that there are there are people pushing the craft and the art down there. Something I've wondered is, you know, days gone by, and probably less so Zimbabwe, but you know, historically, there's been certain African countries which have been notable for the kind of unique hash they put out, and it often historically it would go to Amsterdam, and that's how it kind of got the reputation. Do you feel like as more modern production comes in? there'll be probably a, we'll see an end to that and like maybe not zimbabwe but other countries that are known for their hash it'll fall off a bit or do you think it'll always be there
1: no so there is no shona word for hash zimbabwe, zimbabwe no one in zimbabwe knew what hash was knew what a dab was like that a large part of africa doesn't know what a concentrate is like, like wow. or the concept wow. of thereof Like like smoking also is more of a taboo like just smoking anything is more taboo there, like just culturally than here, like in terms of general acceptance, like, yeah, people smoke cigarettes and you can buy them or whatever, but like not, it's 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 more like living in some of the more li- really progressive areas where there really isn't that many people smoking. Um, You know, it's just not, they, they export all that, right? That was like the dirty white people thing, right? Like that was not, not trying to be racist, but like, mm. That was that was kind of thing that they kind of were like, yeah, that's for them, right? Like it's not for us.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. And Again, I mean, not
1: trying to be derogatory by saying that, but it, it culturally that that's really how it is there.
0: No heck. In in terms of if we're talking about tobacco, I can I can get behind that. That's that's not something that I need. But um, you've you've made me realize this is probably the longest we've ever gotten to an interview where we're finally gonna say, all right, time for the usual first question. Take me back. What was your first experience with cannabis?
1: Oh man, first experience with cannabis. So my first experience, I remember having, uh, I don't remember my first experience. I can remember the first time getting really high. I remember Hit that. Me. That I could tell you clear as day. Uh, was going and I was working at a, a cyber cafe at the time. And anyone who knows me knows exactly the cyber cafe in the town near where I grew up. And there used to be a train station near there with a guy named Dan. Um, And uh, we went there with a friend of mine and Dan and Pat. And we went over there with a ceramic bowl that he had made in art class that looked like a dragon. And uh, we had packed a bowl of some good shit that one of them we got from a relative. And uh, man, and it was a good spot because at the train station, you could watch the police station. And we were kind of up in elevation. So if they pulled out, we could peace out before they had a chance to come up to where we were and be out or you know at least have a chance to hide your weed so it was a good place to sit and smoke if you're a teenager (laughs) because it's hard to get snuck up on so um, we used to go up there and man I just I remember that first time going holy crap like this is and then the day after that was the first time I ever got so high I couldn't get off the floor (laughs) and I remember that too
0: (laughs) brilliant and so How did that progress? Did you quite quickly start smoking more regularly or it took a bit of a while?
1: No, I kind of was off and on. And then I didn't really start smoking heavily until maybe four years later. Uh, And then I was starting to get sick. Um, and that's when I was, uh, so I have a digestive tract issue and I have issues digesting things and I was, I'm hypersensitive to gluten and, and it causes me all kinds of, without getting into gross details, unpleasantries. So, um, with my digestive, digestive system. So, um, I started smoking more and more and more flour because it was the thing that was allowing me to eat. I was gaining weight again. I wasn't in pain and it was like solving a long list of my health problems and then finally I was dating this girl and she goes have you tried a raw food diet and just you know make just eliminating the possibility that it's your diet and I said no I haven't but you know what screw it like I've tried everything else let's just try it and uh, so we did that and um, found out that that was the issue so then after that I, I smoked a little less cannabis and then I got um, when I moved out to Colorado and um, 2010 or 2011 or whatever it was, um, uh, got into concentrates and then really got a lot. Suddenly that was like, oh my God, I can be a normal person again. Like medically, like I can feel like a normal, the way I used to before I started feeling sick. Uh, And that was really a huge change for me. But what really made me commit my life to cannabis was working at the aquaponic source. And we had this this guy come in uh, and his son, the first time he came in, He was a cannabis refugee, and his son was strapped to a stroller. He couldn't move. He he was completely unaware of the world around him, uh, and and, you know he was disconnected from reality. And uh, they had just moved there. He wanted to buy a system for himself. He wanted to grow his son's medicine. He wanted to like you know get his son better. This next time I saw them was three months later. That kid opened the door on his own. Ran in and started smashing eight-ounce measuring glasses and shot glasses. I cried for like an hour straight because that kid was functionally a vegetable three months earlier, and he's in here smashing stuff now, acting like a little boy. That is the best gift you can give any human being. And if I can do even half of that for somebody else, that's what I'm going to do every day till I'm dead. And after that, that's what got me to commit to this. And that's why I've got on this long, crazy train of riding the cannabis industries up and down throughout all these different industries and countries and all the different craziness that it's brought (laughs) me and the different projects I've worked on and you know, makes it easier to get through when something like the virus suddenly pauses your project. You're like, eh, I'm still doing this for a reason and I'm a thousand percent behind and I'm not even going to trip on that.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. What a what a powerful and personal story there. So, what was it that made you really kick the gear into shift in terms of kind of seeing that the the cannabis community wasn't really utilizing aquaponics in the way that it could be? What was it that got the fire under your ass about getting the message out there about aquaponics and cannabis?
1: Sure. So I've always been a big uh, adequate proponent of um, the pet trade and I was uh, been uh, big involved with aquaponic, or I'm sorry, aquarium societies. I was heavily involved with the Bucks County Aquarium Society when I was younger and um, working in the pet trade, uh, the pet trade and the drug trade have a heavy amount of overlap in case anyone's ever not worked in the industry. Uh, so <laughs> there's a lot of things that get shipped in boxes from point A to point B and get labeled as plants or fish or other things and they're not always what you think is in the box and we'll leave it at that. Um, so, um, I got exposed to a whole lot of things that maybe, uh, not everyone else my age was exposed to. <laughs> and, uh, I learned how to grow. And one of the things that we did at one of the places allegedly that I worked at that, um, uh, we would do is take the fi- the filtration from the freshwater systems that would separate out all the fish waste, and we'd use that on the cannabis plants as uh, organic fertilizer because we were trying to cut down on the amount of fertilizer that we were buying, because you're trying to reduce the amount of red flags that might get you busted, so uh, allegedly. So, um, <laughs> uh, so so I I had kind of worked with that a little bit, and then. Um, I had gotten into soil growing, uh, uh, later on, uh, not long after that. And, uh, I kind of went down that rabbit hole, but I still always used kind of like tea from what well, I would do my water changes and I'd suck all the fish waste out of the gravel and I always, just, and the plants always just kicked butt when we did that. Right. So I was always kind of fiddling with it kind of half, halfway. And then I got into river tanks, which is basically aquaponics. Uh, if you're familiar with it, it was a product, uh, inserts for aquariums that allowed the aquarium water to kind of flow through little channels where it had plant pots and you put soil and it would kind of automatically water the plants and filter the water at the same time and, and really allow for a healthy ecosystem uh, for reptiles mainly. Um, so it was really cool. So I had been doing aquaponics, but I didn't call it aquaponics. We called it river tanks, but that we just didn't have the terminology. I'd never been exposed to that word. Um, so when I, when I came out uh, West, I worked uh, um, uh, helping grow some cannabis with some friends of mine and and the floods happened in 2012 uh, in Colorado when we had the the heavy floods and it took out the um uh the uh, uh we had a big mud wall at one of the places we was working at that obliterated half the building so uh i, I was suddenly out of a job so uh, i applied for i typed in the word aqua on craigslist and got hired at the aquaponics source because they were just moving into a new place and they needed someone that could help with both the lab and, and product development at the time when sylvia bernstein was there and she was kind enough to to give me a chance over there and uh um uh, hired me uh, because I had a, you know an immense amount of experience both with cannabis and, and in vegetables and, and everything else. I worked briefly for a company called Blood Good Landscape, which is the oldest landscaping company in the entire United States based in, in Horsham, Pennsylvania. And they've been around since the 1700s uh, and uh, they, they have an incredible uh, place there. But I got a chance to learn large scale IPM and fertigation and stuff like that, working with with um, you know trees and bushes and shrubs and annuals for people's landscapes and stuff. And, and I worked, you know, selling plumbing kits and designing stuff for, for ponds there on the side, helping him out. So I got a chance to kind of get into that kind of scale before jumping into cannabis, but having that kind of cannabis experience kind of on the side at the same time. So coming into Colorado and having those kind of dual skill sets really, really worked out well uh, coming into the cannabis industry and, and, and working on the bigger scale of things. And, um, uh, and, and, and made an easy transition working with the aquaponics source. And then we did a whole bunch of research. You know, they wanted it two weeks after I was there. She goes, so we're thinking about doing cannabis. I thought it was a trick question. Like they're, they're trying to see if I smoke weed or not. And they're going to see if I admit it. And they're going to fire me. So I just totally played dumb. And she about, she like adjourned the meeting. And I was like, oh, you were serious. Let me tell you some stuff. So, (laughs) so we sat down and then we ended up doing the whole project and I started working with the gentleman and Robbie, who was actually just on my podcast last episode and him and I did a ton of R and D with, with cannabis and a whole bunch of different setups and aquaponics. Uh, Everything from wicking beds to dual root zones to media beds to DWC to dual root zones to to 55-gallon drums to like any kind of combination or setup you could do. So we're trying to figure out what's the best commercial viable way because we're trying to figure out how can we sell more aquaponic systems and how can we turn this into a heavily commercial production? How can we further produce fruit, fruiting crops, you know, not just cannabis, but anything we learn from cannabis is going to help increase production for peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers. And and all of those things are easily transitionable over in terms of production. So we worked hard on, on not only medicinal herbs and, and essential oil crops, but also cannabis production in, in an R&D greenhouse that we had 50 by 30 by 18. And we did a bunch of additional experimentation with climate control models and stuff like that with geothermal and solar water heaters and, and some other stuff that we can get into if you want to. But um, we did a whole bunch of cool R&D on that and, and really got a chance to wrap our heads around stuff and figure out what works, what doesn't, um, you know, what could work if we did some changes and, and really kind of uh, uh, – splay that out and and figure out how to make it work and and after that we kind of just took that and ran with it and then we we started working with a method called dual root zones where we have a soil uh, zone and that really allowed us an extra layer of control where we can supplement not only supplement nutrients but um, have additional microbial zones. You know, mycorrhizal fungi are incredibly important for anything that's heavy in lignin. And, and having done a wide range of crops in aquaponics, the more wood a, and lignin a crop contains, the more of a soil area you need. So if you're doing fruit trees, you might do a dual root zone pot that's maybe two-thirds soil to one-third flood and drain. Whereas on a cannabis, you're going to be more 50-50. And then on a, on a lettuce, you might be able to just do straight DWC. You might not even need soil at all because it doesn't need. Any, there's no lignin at all in that plant, hardly, right? So so it, that, that lignin content is heavily dependent on some of the metabolites from the fungal uh, inputs that come from the fungal part of the root zone. If you don't have them, you either will not get very good growth, or you'll get strange or retarded growth, or you'll get a lack of fruiting production, One of one of the three, depending on what fruit tree species we're talking about, or genus at least, that I've worked with.
0: Yeah, wow. I mean, so many questions. The first one which which comes to mind for me is for you in your mind right now, what's the ideal composition of your root zone? Do you want all living organic soil? Do you want like what you just mentioned, maybe a 50-50? Where would you be shooting for?
1: Sure. So my ideal setup for a uh, cannabis plant would be fifty-fifty living soil uh, with a layer of burlap or cloth or other root-permeable membrane that that would be separate the the soil from the the flood and drain, and then lava rock below that um, to get you know some trace minerals and anything else inside of a, a contained pot. And I prefer plastic, and I know people don't like that, but plastic or ceramic over. Um, cloth pots, because the cloth pots don't give you a seal. If I have a nice seal on the side of it with plastic or ceramic, when the water floods and drains in the bottom half of the pot, like it does with the dual root zone pot, it creates a a diaphragm action that causes a forced gas exchange through the soil zone. So not only is the lower half breathing and getting better gas exchange, the soil is getting better gas exchange, meaning all of the soil microbes are even happier. So it it gives you this this added benefit of almost a lung effect going on in the root zone.
0: Yeah, what a, what a brilliant way to kind of help people um, conceptualize the sort of gas exchange that's going on with the diaphragm. I really like that. So a question I like to ask most of our guests is, bit, you know, specific to you in this case is, do you remember your first aquaponic harvest and will it always be like, you know, this golden thing in your mind? Because we always talk to organic growers and they're like, man, that first organic crop, I'll always remember it.
1: Oh, yeah. The, the first crop I did, I harvested it entirely too early uh, and I, <laughs> I gave it way too much sugar. So it was like starting to droop leaves because I had I'd suffocated the roots. Um, uh, but, <laughs> and I had a, but, but it tasted great, you know, but I, I definitely remember just the sweetness and, and how it almost tasted like caramel. It's like <laughs> smoking caramel. And it was an island sweet skunk. And in fact, that's the plant, if you go back and look at my my very first article I did with High Times on aquaponics, it's the plant that's in that picture. Oh, that was the first one we did that was full term with with cannabis. We, we did pictures with that one. Um, and that we did in aquaponics that was of any kind of size. I had done some small stuff before that was pure. I'm sorry. I did some other stuff that wasn't pure aquaponics, but that was the first one that was pure aquaponics start to finish including flowering and everything in between, you know, from seed. Uh, and, uh, that Island sweet skunk is that cut to this day was still exists in Denver area. I gave some to, uh, to the dude from dude grows and a couple of other people. And I know he he's raved about it for, for a while on his show as well.
0: Lovely. And I mean, I know you're also a friend, so, you know, shout out to our our mutual buddy, breeder Steve for creating such a nice strain.
1: Hell yeah. Actually, uh, well, one thing about Breeder Steve, he's the original person to write about aquaponics in, in in any kind of written form. Back on Overgrow, he's the very first person. And you can go back and search, I've searched the internet top and to bottom. He's the very first person to ever write about anything that you could call aquaponics uh, in, in, in with cannabis in documented form. And it was back in nineteen ninety-six or ninety-seven on, on overgrow.net.
0: Wow, there you go. That's a cool little tidbit from the archives. I like that. So, the aquaponics is going well, it's all starting to come together. At what point did you have the idea for starting the Potent Ponics podcast?
1: Sure. So uh, the Poem Podcast started actually as a debate between Marty and I. Marty and I were debating on whether or not you absolutely had, like, what the differences was in yield between dual root zones and non-dual root zones. And Marty and I kind of got into a a heated discussion. Then we realized we were the only people that we really on a on a uh, had enough experience to have that level of a of an argument, and then we quickly became friends. And then we got both got sick and tired of hearing you can't grow weed in aquaponics. Like we 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 heard that a thousand times, and we we're just sick and tired of it because we got plant and we I've pulled six and a half pounds off of a single plant in an aquaponics that we planted in a greenhouse the last week of July and pulled down the you know in October right so don't tell me you can't grow a lot of weed on an aquaponic plant. You can grow psychotic amounts of weed on an aquaponic plant if you, if you do it right. So, um, and I can prove it. I got evidence video and everything else. So, um, (laughs) um, so we basically started the podcast as a, F you uh, to everyone that told us that we we couldn't grow aquaponically. So we're like, screw it. We're going to put the education out and teach everybody how to do it. You know, and maybe not every single trick that we know, but you know, ninety-eight percent of them. So if we put out education on how to do it, then everyone can know how to do it, and understand how it works, and actually you know they can wrap their heads around it and maybe they'll even convert it or adapt it as part of their facility and 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 one of the things is that we see a lot of soil growers adapting it for their nursery facilities because again the accelerated growth rate you get with the mothers if you're just producing clones for other people or you're, you're you know or you're producing a large amount of, of plant volume for high turnover facilities you need to kind of have you know accelerated growth rate on your your veg production and and, and either you know growing them out in size or, or for straight clone production so Growing, you know, even using it in a large soil production facility, it makes a lot of sense to have it for your nursery operations. Being aquaponics, even even you know, on 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 just a minor scale.
0: Yeah, what a powerful testament to the to the technology, I guess, and I guess. For me, the question I want to most know is what's it been like now to have been running for, you know, over 200 successful episodes? It's such a tremendous milestone in the podcast industry, you know, seeing as we're still yet to crack 50 over here. What what have you learned in that time and what's your key to success? How do I do it?
1: Um, I would say… Uh uh one just experience of working with a wide range of different people um uh, and then two uh, you know making sure you you spend a little bit of time to research your your people before you interview them and and you know try to learn a little bit about something that maybe they haven't talked about in other podcasts or maybe you know get them to go down a rabbit hole you know we I'm, both of us have had a lot of really incredible um uh, conversations and really wonderful explanations of some pretty complex uh ideas and 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 um uh, methodologies and um you know and biological mechanisms and, and all types of things that that you know kind of came of maybe even an offhanded comment from someone in chat or or a weird question or, or an afterthought that maybe wasn't even on your original list I know some of the, the coolest answers I've gotten were someone that just randomly had an offhanded question about something or maybe something that one of the panelists had you know it, it wasn't something I had written down for original question list so it, it can be really cool and 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 not only that just the diversity of the industry i mean you have so many different ways to crack the nut that um uh, of growing cannabis and and doing pest management and doing nutrients i mean you got hydroponics aeroponics soil growing living soil uh aquaponics and everything in between so it, it's you know it's really interesting to see how they different compare and how different one accelerates. One thing that it's always interesting to me is seeing, you know, different cannabinoid and terpene peaks with the different production methods and and how uh, certain stressors because of those different grow methodologies can really peak certain things Is one of the things I always found really interesting, especially when you're doing side-by-sides and you know that maybe a certain weird thing happened. Maybe your AC failed or a pump failed or, you know, something else went wrong, but it causes a weird side reaction or a a weird peak. We had a, uh, oh, how can I say this without getting myself into trouble? We had an anomaly happen that caused an immense increase in THCV, uh, uh, uh production, uh, in one of our grows that allowed us to kind of chase the rabbit hole on what actually is the secondary, uh, increaser for that. So, um, we we've, we've managed to hit some pretty high levels on, on THCV with some of our, one of the clients that we've been working with in Colorado. So, um, uh, you know, there really is a lot of different that I think that's really an area where there there isn't a lot of research, especially with cannabis, there might be a way to really, you know, pluck the strings the right way to piss off the plant to really produce a large amount of XYZ compound uh, that might be a, a, a value commercially that is easily replicatable. I mean, look at something like corn smut um uh, let's use that as an example with with corn you have corn smut that they they spray on the corn which increases makes this wonderful flavorful mushroom well um what they found uh and and Mike West has talked about this on my show uh, if you if you're familiar with him from embark health in canada he was one of the people that was involved with, You uh, got a chance to see some of the data for, I believe it was from Emerald cup and they noticed there was a, a dramatic increase in CBT levels, which is a, a minor cannabinoid from powdery mildew uh, infected plants. So plants that failed for PM also seem to have elevated levels of CBT. So what if CBT ends up being, and this is just for the sake of argument there's, um, that CBT ends up being like the next big breakthrough in cancer drug. You might have people intentionally infecting flower rooms to, weeks before harvest with powdery mildew to spike the CBT like this is something that mechanically might make sense or or some it might be a non-pathogenic microbe that we spray on the plants to boost something in a a way (coughs) or it might be a GMO microbe I mean you know people might get mad at me for saying that but you might have something that that's human made or, or or human isolated maybe not even human made but maybe vat grown Uh, And that's isolated from a natural source that that increases an X Y Z metabolite to spike a cannabinoid or terpene that that we use that we that that five years from now we can't even think of not using. You know, I mean, you could have something that's that much of a breakthrough that suddenly increases THC by ten percent, or or some other thing that that we just didn't know. You know, and these are all things that because of the the some of the results that i've seen with different issues that we've run into or, or variables that we've experimented with because of the the amount of control that we have with the dual root zone aquaponics we've managed to, to really have more knobs and buttons that we can turn and and push and, and levers to pull uh, to change things and have more more variables that can be changed in different parts of the system and and allow us to unlock some of the stuff and i think that again is, is an area that really could use a lot more flushing out and a lot more research.
0: A hundred percent. That makes me so excited to hear you talk about that because, I mean, you know, to call on him again, thinking back to when I spoke to Breeder Steve myself, we kind of spoke about this, not in the level you just did, but talking about how you know, when Botrytis infects grapes, it led to the, like, a creation of a new type of wine and on face value, you'd be like, no, I don't want Botrytis. Um, So, what you just said, it just speaks to that philosophy so greatly, which is amazing. And I guess what I'd want to ask is, kind of relating back to Dragonfly, they mentioned to me that um, they feel like when your soil is really alive and popping, you can get different expressions and you kind of alluded to that yourself. Have you noticed a consistent sort of thing that comes out when you grow things aquaponically like a consistent way the profile is affected or maybe the turf have you noticed anything like that or you think it's variable you can't quite
1: make broad rules of thumb like that sure I would say across the board beta carophylline is, is is above is elevated across the board um other than beta carophylline, it's the o- off the top of my head. It's the only one that I can say is is pretty universal. there's definitely spikes in other ones in certain in certain cultivars, but that's the one I would say that, you know, any of them express in any kind of a way are going to have a, a night and day difference with the aquaponics. Um, not not really ringing a bell on any other ones.
0: Yeah, no, but that's great info in itself because, I mean, I was always surprised when I looked at like um, terpene analysis of cookies and you'd see it had a good amount of beta-caryophylline in it. And so, it's like if that's what you're growing, maybe you can get an even better terp profile out of aquaponics.
1: So, we, one of the biggest increases, we've had strains go from 4% to 9% CBD with aquaponics versus soil control that's been a huge increase and I know that uh, green, the there's a university that was working with Green Relief Incorporated which is one of the bigger companies in Canada doing aquaponics they noticed a 14% increase in THC production against DWC controls with dual, dual root zones so um, you know I, and then also uh, against soil as well, I forget it was like 18% or it was even more against the soil. So um, and they have actual there's a published white paper on on their breakdown. Uh, I don't remember the name of the paper or anything, but you can look it up. Um, the, if you look up the the uh, Aquaponics Association meeting for last year, um, I believe it's referenced in the, the, um, the conference meet there, uh, if you're trying to hunt that down.
0: Yeah, some great leads there for the listeners to follow up on. Just to jump back to our last question about, you know, having accumulated all of this experience and knowledge from having done your podcast for over 200 fantastic episodes now, what's one thing that's changed in your mind since the start and what's a cool discovery you've learned along the way?
1: I think uh, the biggest thing I've taken away from is, is thinking about microbes as a machine I can use to make things for me in a plant way, like a plant useful way. So for a great example, it would be like thinking of KNF as a machine that I can put plant inputs through to isolate minerals or plant hormones or other plant beneficial um, compounds to accelerate growth rate. So a great example of this would be something like um, uh, uh, la- lactobacilli. So lactobacilli are, are great because that not only do they outcompete most pathogens, E. coli, salmonella, listeria, um, they love to feed on all of those things, which has been documented in both the meat processing industry, but also the agricultural processing industry and in aquaponic production. Um, specifically through the University of Kentucky State, who did a, a research on um, both plant and fish production, where they were able to get an increase in fish production of 10 to 15% in terms of growth rate and plant Plant production on average 18 to 20 percent in most crops uh, uh, and that's all aquaponics to so the University of Kentucky State um, you, you can check that out uh, uh, um, Joe pate uh, um, is the guy that um, uh, George pate I believe is his actual name uh, is the guy who did the paper on that uh, a white paper on that um, but um, I was involved with the lactobacilli part of that so, what I prefer to do with labs, and I'm sure you've had other people on talked about labs on the, on the show, but I prefer to do it a little different. So I prefer to do kefir-based labs. So I'll get kefir or kefir, depending on your culture uh, on how you say it. Um, and, and it's a, a lactobacilli culture that seems to have significantly higher uh, levels of a different vitamin B complexes. also works faster. If I'm doing this on a commercial scale, I don't have time to wait. Days and days and days for this to work. It needs to work tomorrow. So if I do large gallons and large volumes with kefir, it will go, you know, 24 to 48 hours and it's ready. I don't have time. This is commercial production. This is again a resin factory. We're not going after, you know, trying to baby everything. I don't have time for that. Um, so uh, we do a, a kefir based. Uh, so we do kefir and milk instead of the traditional air collected um, stuff. We find we get dramatic increases in growth rate compared to side by in side by sides doing everything everything else is identically the same just faster growth rate you get better vitamin b complexes what you can do with that is is that add spirulina so if i'm doing four gallons i do in five gallon batches so if i'm doing four gallons of milk i will add um a, a, four cups of spirulina two cups of kelp extract and uh, top off um, uh, whatever's left over with water and put a lid on it and ferment that uh, for uh, anywhere from three to five days the first time. And then once you get the good culture uh, of microbes, it'll go anywhere from 24 to 72 hours, depending on the, the temperature you're, you're doing it it. And what it'll do is it will separate your uh, phycocyanin from your um, uh, the spirulina. And it'll also separate a lot of the auxins from the kelp, which and along combining with the vitamin B gives you kind of three major groups of plant uh, stimulant um, uh, compounds that will dramatically increase both growth rate, but help with recovery. So if I have a plant that's been mauled by insects, that's been run over by a lawnmower, that's been, I don't know, whatever you did, didn't water it, you you overwatered it. You, whatever you did, it's just it's hurting bad. It's a great fix-it spray. If you, you I, I've put it on plants that ha- pepper plants that had been watered in two and a half weeks. The leaves were so dry they were crispy like paper, uh, and crumbled to dust. And we we put it on it, and we had new growth on every single le- uh, leaf node within three days, on dead stems. Wow! So you, it does unreal stuff to plants. We just recently, last week, had it on a, a cherry tree that was completely defoliated by, defoliated by Japanese beetles, and we had new growth on all the branches within five days of foliar application. So it really just it wakes the plants up and says, "Hey, time to reboot. You know, let let's get going again and let let's just go fast and let's just, just crank it out." So uh, I wouldn't use it late into flower. Never use Labs foliarly in flower. It can mess with the trichomes um and and you know great for veg you can use it on the roots in flower do not ever use it on the trichome heads in flower
0: what an absolute goldmine of knowledge right there i just got to quickly clarify because this is the question i probably get asked more than anything related to kind of what you just said We often hear the saying, you know, you don't want to, generally speaking, apply really any foliars during flower because it can mess with the trichomes, as you said. But then you'll often hear some people, and I'll acknowledge, sometimes I say it too, it's like, well, you know, if you don't have a lot of pistol production before week two, I mean, you could use it in the first week, maybe the second. Do you feel like that's detrimental or would you say, look, you know, at a certain point there's buds and that's when you're damaging it?
1: No, the issue is not the pistols, the issue is the trichomes. The lactobacilic acid is a negative impact on the trichomes themselves and it will directly impact resin production. That's it's a much bigger problem than just turning the pistols a different color like with the with the pH changes.
0: Sure. So just to clarify that point, if someone was early enough in flower that there was no trichome formation but they felt the plant really needed the fix and no, spray.
1: But you still you still have that pre that pre-trichome production. You remember a lot of those trichome heads, they're not developed yet, but that head's still there. The, the the initial cells are already present on the leaf tissue, right? So it just has to grow. So so you're still damaging that site. Yeah. Right? So
0: Fantastic, fantastic. So The next question I wanted to ask, I mean, it's on the same topic, when we're talking about KNF, it's a whole world we can explore in its own right. A story story which has always stuck with me, which I believe, I think I'm pulling this out of the libraries of my own memory here, so forgive me if I'm wrong, universe, but I think I saw it on the Australian weed growing subreddit. And this person was saying they were doing an aquaponic cannabis system and they were using... I can't remember the number, maybe five, maybe six different types of kelp. And they were like, if you use these different types of kelp, you kind of cover most of the bases. Have you ever heard of anything like that? And what sort of KNF stuff do you like to implement into your aquaponics?
1: Sure. So, so I think that part of that is coming from a lot of the aquaponic people will tell you that sea salt or, or um, uh, just kelp in general is kind of the, the mineral fix-it for aquaponics. Like, I don't know what mineral deficiency i have but if i put this random mix of trace minerals it'll probably fix it and it never does but that's the general you know with lettuce when you're dealing with the low levels of nutrients they need yeah it'll fix it most of the time the problem you have with cannabis is and this is a problem i see quite often with people that follow the direction with cannabis specifically is that what does kelp have a lot of has a lot of boron now, what happens if I do a lot of boron in a closed system? I'm going to get a buildup of boron. Now, what does boron sort to displace? It starts to going to screw up my calcium uptake because the boron to calcium ratio is very finicky. If I go too high on the boron, I need to really up my calcium or my uptake is going to be all screwed up. So... Um, uh, you end up with these really big imbalances between the boron and the calcium that that chemically start screwing stuff up in in their own right um with the people that just kind of go balls to the wall with the, with the kelp extract and or the 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 sea salt dilutions which they end, usually end up with sodium problems but that's a whole other issue but there, there again, there, there's a lot of, and I'm working on it currently on a book called um, Aquaponacea, which will be an aquaponic cannabis book that'll kind of have all the all this stuff broken down, all the different normal reference stuff that as far as minerals, uh, people are gonna want to use. And, and all you know what you can and can't use why you specifically shouldn't use certain things just because of all the different stuff that I've kind of figured out over the years Um, because there isn't really a good source and all and that's one of the biggest problems is there there is no really reservoir other than the podcast that we've put out that I put out there isn't really anything specific to aquaponic cannabis that really has any kind of you know, weight behind it. Certainly nothing that's been, been done on a commercial scale. So it's it's hard, you know, I, I I fully understand why someone coming into it just doesn't have a lot of reference to it because unless you've listened to the podcast or taken, you know, one of my classes, you're really not going to know what PPMs your stuff should be at, what, you know, what is going to kill your fish. Another great example would be yucca extract. Yucca extract or saponin is often used as a wetting agent for both pest management products and for for root drenches and stuff like that. The problem is it's incredibly fish lethal. It is so fish lethal that the Indians, the Yurok Indians, among others in in, uh, the northern um, uh, uh, California, uh, would collect uh, yucca roots and they'd squeeze the juice out of the roots and collect that juice as a concentrate and put it in vessels and they'd evaporate it off and make a a even further concentrate out of it. Then they get a couple of guys with a couple of those vessels that go upstream about a mile, wait for the salmon run, pour it into the river and it would kill all the fish within about a quarter mile of the river. Uh, But they'd have about half a mile or a mile down. They have the whole village waiting in the river so they collect all the fish as they float by and then they cook them off and it gets rid of the sapin and then they can eat them so but that was literally used as a method for for you know entire tribes to feed themselves for years so this is something that's well not only documented in Western culture but this is documented going back 10,000 years that you shouldn't use sapin in around fish so <laughs>
0: yeah i mean it's, it's funny you mention that because i remember when i was on your show i brought that up and you were very quick on the ball to be like "Up!" Oh, but if you're an aquaponics guys don't use it but um yeah very valid point point. and just you know further i just wanted to say you know we're, we're all really grateful for the the archive of knowledge you've put out around aquaponics because you certainly hit it on the head there's there's no other resource quite like your show What you just said raises a really interesting point in terms of what do you feel it's important to supplement your aquaponic system with versus what's important to not supplement it with which you might, for example, bring over as a bad habit because, you know, you could use me as an example. I'm happy to do that. You know, I come from soil. I might, you know, without your knowledge, I might be like, man, saponins are amazing. Um, So, yeah, what's some good things to bring with you and what's some things you should probably leave behind?
1: I would say um, number uh, things to avoid would be one, safe and two, um, brassicas as a companion plant. I, for some reason, still see people suggest that, and I do not understand why. Um, anything in the mustard family kills mycorrhizal fungi. It releases something called lillopathy, wh- which is a, a, a loose term for chemicals that kill nearby plants. Anything else that's living. It's used both for coral or for the roots of plants or for, it's used for a wide range of different things. But basically, the plants, uh, uh, brassicas, do not have associative mycorrhizal fungi. About 85% of the world's plants do. They do not. They actively kill associative mycorrhizal fungi because it inhibits their own growth. So they will not help you. uh, And there's something again that I I still suggest. I still see people suggesting. I don't understand it. Um, Another one that I've learned this this year in particular in Oklahoma, southern Oklahoma, is do not grow cilantro anywhere remotely near anything outdoor. Um, Cilantro attracts aphids of every type. Um, It's just a magnet. Root aphids, regular tree aphid, you know, cotton aphids. I've seen entirely to We just, all of it got trashed and just no, nowhere near the grow. And then I went to another vegetable grow and found an incredibly bad root aphid infection, which I posted a couple pictures uh, not too long ago on Instagram of, of probably the worst root aphid infestation. But that again, thankfully wasn't not at a cannabis farm, was at a vegetable farm. But uh, again, if that was at a cannabis farm, we'd probably have to burn the whole place. Like if it looked like that, like I don't honestly know what I would tell the owner. If yeah. it was that bad. That <laughs> like <laughs> vegetables, people are a little more okay with trashing everything, you know?
0: Yeah, look, I was gonna say anyone who's ever had to fight aphids in the cannabis context, when they see that photo you put up, there's a visceral reaction to it. It's just like you got punched in the stomach, you're like, oh no. <laughs> well,
1: I got I got a picture. If you scroll down a little farther on my Instagram, I got pictures of bong aphids from a, a grow I was called to, and they should have called me probably two two months before they actually called me over there. And Every single plant probably had a minimum of 15,000 aphids on it. An entire 100 by 30 greenhouse. Every single plant. Like, like There was as much weight of aphids as there was biomass of plant in that greenhouse.
0: Man, they grow a biomass or insect frass?
1: <laughs> you know you could ferment all of that and sell it as an IPM like we were talking about and, and, you know, you you could maybe recoup your costs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, gosh, please, guys, just grow good weed. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, for me, I think the logical next question is, Would you be able to give us a basic rundown on how someone might be able to go up setting about a relatively simple setup at their home if they're interested in getting into aquaponics or would you advise that unless you're really ready to jump in, there might not be a sort of get your toes wet option per se?
1: Sure. I would just say, you know, set up your system like you're going to do for a flood and drain cocoa uh set up, and then instead of doing cocoa, do dual root zone pots, flood and drain and you know, cut your standpipe to, to four or five inches and just flood and drain the bottom half instead. Uh, and, and then top feed with your, your upper half with either automated, uh, like we do on a large scale, or you know, hand if you're just doing a couple of plants at home. And, and you'll have a hell of a lot more control. You'll have a lot better flavor on your plants. And, and again, you're not going to have to do a lot of adapting. You're going to, you know, you, you could absolutely do this if you don't even want to do it with, the, with the fish, you could do hydro dual root zone and you'll still get an incredible increase in impact. And I think you, 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 anyone that even does this with a hydro dual root zone will notice an immediate difference in flavor against any side-by-side
0: yeah amazing and for someone who might exist like myself in a little bit of a more warmer country most of the year do you think that that is quite problematic because i think i've heard someone say that you know like in australia during peak summer you're going to really struggle to keep the fish alive because it gets really hot is that just something i've misheard or do you feel like it's not particularly any more challenging
1: no i mean i don't think that you're going to have any more challenge than we do here in oklahoma I mean, frankly, we're getting, you know, you guys have very similar peak summertime temperatures. If anything, we might even top out a few degrees higher than you guys Fahrenheit-wise, so... Um, you know if we can do it here I don't understand why you guys couldn't do there. I would say that in Australia in particular I'd be much more concerned about doing geothermal cooling both for your water and for your air Uh, you know the the impact of of pulling that cold air out of the ground is going to make it you know much much cheaper in terms of cost effectiveness for climate control Um, and again with the thermal mass you have with the water you can run coils in the ground like we do here in Oklahoma where we run coils in the water and then run them underground just to wick the heat off and the water sucks the heat in, and we can actually pull air temperature degrees off of it by sucking it into the water and using the thermal mass of the water as a battery, basically to suck temperatures off and then bleed that off underground. Uh, and we can again, turning that off increases the temperature in the greenhouse. I was just at about uh, you know two and a half degrees. So.
0: Yeah, that's Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's Fahrenheit. that's not trivial. That's a good amount of heat reduction for sure.
1: Especially if we're talking about BTUs on an AC unit.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, when you're chomping through power, I feel you. Um, So, the next question that came up for me is, in Australia, tilapia is actually illegal. So, what sort of fish would you recommend that might go well in one of these systems across the board and then maybe a specific one for Australia seeing as unfortunately tilapia is out?
1: Sure, so across the board, I would say anyone getting started, uh, you know, depending on your tank size, but assuming you aren't going anything incredibly small, go with Koi or, or Goldfish because they're really bulletproof. They'll tolerate all kinds of stupid things that you might accidentally do. And, uh, you know, they have a good resale value. You can almost always unload decent sized ones for people for their ponds. You know, I mean, regardless of what country you're in, especially butterfly koi, butterfly koi are easily, you know, you're going to increase them exponentially per, per. you know, every inch that you add them, you're adding, you know, anywhere from five to $40 US uh, per inch. So, Uh, depending on how big they already are. So you're you're talking quite a bit of money. So if we're talking about cannabis production, we don't generally care about feeding people. I mean, we do in terms of community outreach, but most cannabis companies just want to turn as much profit as humanly possible, right? In terms of business model. So if that's your goal with your business model, going with butterfly koi or something, that really is going to be your long-term best bet. Or with tropical fish that you can, again, turn around and resell, arowanas, arapaima, uh, other large fish that people have a hard time raising in large tanks that you happen to have a whole bunch of that's easy for you to do at the scale that you're operating at can be a really really great option financially uh, for australia specifically uh, murray cod or jade perch uh, both will work very well um, uh you know uh, jade or um, uh, murray cod i believe uh, will also go into brackish water as a jade perch i know correct me on uh,
0: that. unfortunately i'm not the authority
1: here <laughs> yeah so so those guys i would say be careful of anything generally that goes from saltwater to freshwater they tend to absorb potassium at a higher rate uh, salmonids in particular uh, uh, you, unless you're doing decoupled systems which i don't recommend um uh, because it adds a whole other layer of complexity to your chemistry and just it adds money it adds costs to your run as well which is pointless you know we're, we're trying to cut the cost down not add them. Um, but unless you're doing that salmonids are just not an option um, again for the same reason because of that mechanism that ingests salinity also affects potassium uptake and uh, chemically with the fish yeah and, and the, the potassium levels that we're running with cannabis will kill the fish basically they'll have heart heart issues
0: yeah yeah wow that's pretty serious so i guess to for me to wrap up this little segment quickly i just want to know do you always grow aquaponically or is every now and again you're like ah you know i don't have a pump on hand just do some soil
1: so i I always prefer to do aquaponics but i I still do living soil i'm a a uh I love, uh, we've spoken about them earlier, but I love Dragonfly Earth Medicine and the whole living soil and and sustainability and, and ferments and moving into you know trying to, to develop as many possible nutrient sources as possible without uh, outside sources. And um, that's some of the stuff I'm working on in the book as well is, is what nutrients and ferments from KNF can I take and what inputs can I take and ferment and add to my aquaponic system to, to replace those minerals, kind of like you're talking about with iron and other things. Iron's a particularly difficult one because of oxidation, but a lot of the other ones can absolutely be heavily supplemented. One that's often, uh, just to circle back to silica again, uh, silica is often people say ferment um, uh, horsetail, which is a, a, a very common plant worldwide. I believe, I believe you guys even have that in Australia, if memory serves yeah. me correctly. Um, uh, 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 the downside with that is it has a compound and it actually affects vitamin B uptake, which is going to slow my growth rate. Now, you know what has even more silica, actually four times as much silica? Stinging nettle. And everyone loves to ferment stinging nettle already for the garden. So if you're actually looking for silica... Forget the horsetail. Horsetail can also heavily accumulate trace metals, including heavy metals, which can cause you to fail for your testing. So if you're in California, you could actually ferment horsetail and cause yourself to fail your heavy metal testing by accident. Whereas if you go with the stinging nettle, you're going to avoid those issues because it doesn't tend to accumulate the heavy metals at the same high rate. And it'll also add you know, even more silica than the horsetail will. So again, it's just one of those things where once you start looking at some of the numbers on some of these ferments and, and the breakdowns when you actually test them, you realize some of this stuff is actually not what we thought it was and there's actually much better options that we're already using as part of our regimens that actually supplying these other minerals at a much better rate that we just didn't realize.
0: Yeah, wow. Still so much to be learned, I guess. Um, the, the, a question I wanted to ask is just a really quick one. Can you use the the water from aquaponics? Does it like? Can you use it as like a rooting stimulating agent, or do you still use something else to kind of clone?
1: Oh, absolutely! In fact, I, I've had an immense uh, research, but mainly with aeroponic. Uh, growing, but also with with just plug growing with aquaponics and media beds as well with accelerated growth rate uh, with the roots as well, uh, particularly with moringa trees. We're able to root moringa trees within, you know, 14 to, to 20 days. And then we're talking trees. Uh, but with cannabis, uh, there's quite a few, not only my own research, but there's a, uh, um, uh, what's the name of the company? Uh, Fish Shit. Uh, and then the other one's called Poof or Poom. Uh, there's a new company I just found out about the last, last week or so that has another fish waste-based cloning product, and, and both of them are based on fish waste uh, or fermented fish waste or dried fish waste or shelf-stabilized fish waste uh for cloning and all of their research as well for their both of their independent companies also backs up my own data on the accelerated growth rate from the fish waste as well so that again that increase in microbiological activity from those mineral sources really seems to make a marked increase in um and rooting rate and reduction in rooting time
0: yeah I, i kind of suspected as much so that's that's lovely to hear that that is the case
1: But we we found that, you know, results with everything from cannabis all the way to moringa trees. Moringa in Jamaica, we were doing a ton of moringa cloning because moringa is a bitch to germinate. Uh, If you plant 10 seeds, two of them will germinate, right? But you can clone the living crap out of it. It it clones pretty well if you just cut it and stick it in a media bed and let it flood and drain for two or three weeks and, you know, pull it out and you got a a tree you can plant in the ground and away you go. and You can plant the whole forest, you know, pretty quickly that way, so uh these are all methods that that you can do and uh you know very rapidly uh scale up and that was one of the things that we worked with with the rastafarian group in in uh in kingston and Nyabingi was was helping them get some of that stuff going uh, um i don't know what they're doing with it now but that was one of the things that they were doing as a main export was grinding up moringa leaves and, and trying to figure out how to increase that production
0: yeah great info great info so One of the last topics I wanted to spend some time chatting about with you because I know that, I mean, it's, it's obvious by just listening to the podcast thus far is you've got such an extensive knowledge on IPM. I was hoping to pick your mind a little bit about that. And I guess my first kind of question would be, Are there any common IPM treatments that you think people have kind of got it wrong and they should maybe stay away from? And like, I mean, something we've already spoken about, um, saponins, you know, I've seen people use them as an IPM foliar spray before. Would you be willing to do that if it was, say, living soil or what would you use as your first port of call as a general sort of spray to fight off some bugs?
1: Well, as far as general sprays for bugs, um, my first go-to just as a regular general spray, if we're not talking about off-the-shelf stuff, would be the IPM, IMO that we talked about that we were doing in Africa. For off-the-shelf stuff, if I had to pick a single product that worked on the widest range of stuff, it'd probably be a product called Kapow, which is lemongrass oil and castor oil. Um, I've had it work on everything from white flies to spider mites to powdery mildew and everything in between, Um, so as far as a shotgun blast that's going to just hit everything, and that's going to not really negatively impact your plant or its flavor, that you can also use well into flour when diluted, Uh, it is the best as far as doing all of those things simultaneously. If we're talking about single sprays for mold, it would be probably a product called Sonata, which is a uh, Bactylus pumilus, which I found is the hands down best product for mold of any type and any type of indoor grow that I've had the uh, chance to work on. It seems to knock back damn near anything I throw it at. Um, and it's, you know, it's Bactillus Pamilus. It's nothing crazy. It's nothing toxic. I don't have to worry about. I mean, yes, you have to wear your PPE just for compliance reasons, but realistically, it's not going to hurt you in any way. Um, you know, it's not like a chemical spray or something like that where I have to worry about my nervous system or some other issue that's going to be affected, right? It's just a bacteria, right? It's no big deal. Um, and then as far as insects, beneficial insects, I would have to go with uh, lacewings and aureus. Hands down, the, the, those guys are... And nematodes, uh, you know, they're kind of the, the pillars of any IPM that I'm going to do off the bat. And then we'll kind of go into... Depending on climate, really, it's going to change uh, around that more than anything else. You know, what what are the temperature ranges that we're going to deal with an average day in that that growth cycle? And like right now in in, um, Oklahoma, our current regimen that we're doing for pretty much everything outdoor and anything in greenhouse is radically different than anything I would ever do indoor because it's all stuff that can tolerate 95 degrees or higher. You know what I mean? And that's a, not a whole lot of insects. That's your assassin bugs, your californicus, your aureus, and your rove beetles. And that's about it. There's not a whole lot else that's going to live past that. You know, once you get above 100 Fahrenheit, there's not a lot of insects that are going to uh, thrive in that environment.
0: Yeah. What what great information. And I guess it does highlight, you know, it's hard to give these generalized answers. Sometimes you've got to be a bit specific. I know that you do a lot of consulting work for a variety of people, especially for specifically IPM. What types of things do you find you're normally getting called in for and what are often the
1: challenges you face? Um, I would say number one, people that don't realize the, the mineral deficiencies they currently have going on at their farm. Um, I've gone to grows where their head grower didn't know that they needed to balance the pH, the nutrient solution <laughs> and they had been there for quite a few months and had balked their way into the job somehow. Uh, I've been into a grow where I watched a head grower transfer stuff into a room that had an ungodly amount of money worth of plants into it and then not prune off the damaged leaves and then immediately didn't even know that he had an infection because he sprayed all this stuff and thought it was just done and thought and didn't even realize it because they didn't know you're supposed to prune off the, like just all kinds of just a lot of just like rudimentary stuff like people that had pulled someone that had done like a tent grow and then put them in charge of an uh, acreage or you know multi-thousand square foot facilities it's like look don't do that grab someone that did cut flowers grab someone that did pansies grab someone that did geraniums you know who cares like just any amount of scaled agricultural experience like at all <laughs> Um, uh, really makes a big deal you know if someone just you know even growing beans for, for you know that's fine like I'll take that or you know the other thing that I noticed is people that from the military are really easy to work with veterans great man because they're used to procedures SOPs all that stuff they're, they're used to regiment that you know the, the it has to be done this way and it can't be done a different way and they don't think for themselves; they do what the directions say. Or you know, they do to the point where it's helpful, and not to the point where it's a hindrance. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I've been some of the easiest people, and we you know we often love to hire veterans for that reason. Also, a lot of the veterans are, are legally able to have firearms in states that you know you're also allowed to have them. You know, under premises with a license, so they're also a great way to, to hire veterans for easy jobs, as far as uh, you know, a high paying job that they don't have to do a whole lot. Uh, and support people that maybe need a little extra help in society. Uh, you know, a lot of countries have a, have a hard time finding jobs for some of their veterans, and it's a great way for our community to support. Again, we we talked about multiple ways that we can support our community. It's just one more way that we can do that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like, it's a really lovely sentiment there to try to help out people who are maybe need a little extra help and have certainly helped out others throughout their life in one way or another. So something i would not only
1: that you know if you think about what's the number one enemy of our industry education or lack thereof and so so by by just providing good things in the community it opens people up to the idea of educating themselves about our industry i don't have to go out of my way to convert them they will convert themselves
0: yeah that's that's awesome isn't it so you know kind of related to this topic we've seen that there's been a rise in educational sort of events platforms we saw last year there was a whole range of regenerative cannabis symposiums and you even mentioned yourself you're now doing aquaponic classes which is fantastic and people should certainly jump on top of that if they want to get the inside scoop on how to do it all do you predict these will be more common going forward and what's your hopes for the sort of educational classes
1: that you're involved in? Sure. So I've been teaching educational classes since 2013. Um, both on vegetable side of things and on the cannabis side of things, depending on who I was teaching for, as well as medicinal herbs. I'm a passionate herbalist as well as a, a mushroom picker. I, I love to pick uh, all different types of wild mushrooms. I used to teach foraging classes in Colorado. Uh, anyone, the, the pleasure of going up with me uh, almost every would to come up with at least a grocery bag full of food. Uh, so, uh, and, and it's sustainably, you know, we weren't out there taking everything out there either. You know, we were taking no more than 30 or 40% of what was out there. So, still leaving some behind it to, to be there for the next generation. So something that I'm very passionate about. But um, um, uh, we, Marty and I, uh, as the gentleman I do my podcast with, we have a long format uh, commercial aquaponic cannabis class that we'll be releasing later this year. Um, We've been teaching a version, I've been teaching a version of that class since 2013. Um, uh, We've since turned it from a two-day class into a four-day commercial class and then now into a week-long intensive course that we have filmed at a whole bunch of different locations with a whole bunch of different chopped up cool stuff and uh, just all different types of interesting things that we've had or you know maybe we can show you an example of somebody that screwed up real bad and maybe I just don't tell you where it is right so uh, you know we can show you a bunch of stuff that maybe I just couldn't show you in a live class right or an example of something that I just I had to be taken right then and there and we just shot us some footage, some footage of it. So it's, it's all together in this nice, nice cool f- educational format. We're also putting on, um, and you can find more information on that at potentponics.com. Uh, we'll have that out hopefully in the next, uh, uh, 45 to 90 days um, we're, we're almost com- finished completing uh, filming and then uh, we just have to edit it all edit it all up and, and add the extra stuff to it but um, we're also working on uh, the virtual aquaponic cannabis conference on october 33rd and fourth uh, which has a wide range of different speakers um, we have uh, murray hollum which we spoke about earlier this year he's pretty much the leader in aquaponics uh, he's based out of australia we'll also have breeder steve who we also talked about on the episode uh, we'll have chris trump uh, talking about aquaponic uh, KNF. We'll have Matthew Gates or Xenthanol, who's one of the the leading experts on cannabis and pathogens, especially in terms of uh, evolutionary history and, you know, uh, uh, treatments and just... um, uh, ah, he's just such a wealth of knowledge. I love talking to him. Uh, Dr. Wilson Lennon, uh, Wilson Leonard, um, uh, another, uh, aquaponic great. He has the, the wonderful commercial aquaponic cannabis book, which I highly recommend to people if they're listening to this show and they want to learn more about just general aquaponics and they want something that's really an incredible reference guide. Um, it's one of the most in-depth and detailed books out there on the topic. And, and one of the only ones that really does a lot of things right. Um, don't always agree with anybody a hundred percent of the time, but he, uh, He has uh, probably the single best book out there in terms of system design um, that's, that's currently on the market. We have Roger Terry from True Aquaponics. He's a, a wonderful gentleman that I also work with on nutrient subscriptions. If you have an aquaponic system or you're interested in getting a system up and running, uh, he's a great place to um, get nutrients from. Or we can uh, get you set up with a subscription service. We do provide a subscription service that we test your nutrients for you and we provide you custom, custom nutrient solutions for your aquaponic or hydroponic system based on your current nutrient values, not based on some, you know, part eight part beat solution so we can dial that nutrient within you know a, a very small range uh, to specifically boost you know heavy feeding cultivars or anything else that you're doing and make sure that you're getting the production that you expect um, we also have angela tenenbrock um, uh, tenbrock uh, she is one of the leading experts in biosafety and food safety and one of the leading researchers in food safety and aquaponics for vegetable production she's going to be talking about um, biosafety and cannabis facilities and how to protect yourselves from biological pathogens how to stop the introduction of insects and pathogens into your grow in the first place. Um, she has a wealth of knowledge if you're ever trying to get compliant uh, with a government you know, um, certification or any type of audit. Um, she's a wonderful person to check out. Marty Wydell, the co-host of my show, uh, myself, uh, Brennan Strathman from Spectrum King, uh, as well as Growmore uh, Microbial, which is the first beneficial archaea on the market. Uh, Leanne Keys of Chief Cultivator on Instagram, or uh, from Habitat Life. He's one of the, uh, if not the, the best um, head grower up there for aquaponic cannabis production up in Canada. Up at Habitat Life, he's killing it up there. I mean, he has some of the best cannabis in BC. Um, they sold out in seven minutes the other day wow. um, from their harvest. So to give you an idea of how good their weed is. Uh, and they have Josh Rutherford and Dutch Blooms, the gentleman who puts on the Regenerative Cannabis Conference. He's an awesome guy. He's going to be talking about large-scale integration between aquaponics and soil production and how to utilize aquaponics or mineralization from aquaponics to further benefit large-scale soil production. And we have uh, even more speakers that we haven't announced yet that we're going to trickle out um, uh, to you know release a little bit more hype as we get a little bit closer to the event
0: i don't know how you could get any more hype because that's got to be one of the most well-rounded list of speakers i've ever heard and i'd like to give a a little shout out to our our buddy josh he's uh he's a great guy and he's he's like yourself he's doing a lot to try to help promote education in the scene and i think we all value that greatly um it goes without saying guys you got to get a ticket to this event i just got sold listening to that i don't know what you need at this point
1: oh the best part is it's free we're just going to host it on youtube and we'll have free product giveaways um uh you know there with the virtual stuff it doesn't you know normally with a conference it costs money to put the conference on you have to rent the event i have to rent chairs you have to rent you know all the different things you have to get hotel rooms you have to you know it it gets quite if you I, i people don't realize how expensive it can be to put on a conference it can be incredibly expensive and if you don't have the funds to do that, it can be really hard to do. So by having a virtual conference, we don't really have a whole lot of overhead to do that. So what we're going to do is we have a bunch of company sponsors, people like Recharge, uh, True Aquaponics, Grow More, a couple of other guys that are out there. Um, um, uh, what's the name? Uh, There's another company that does a fermented comfrey and some other stuff uh, that that are all going to be donating products that we'll have out there during the, the event. And that are all aquaponic safe or are, are, are fish-based. Um, we're talking to a couple of other people right now uh, that, that we'll have out there and, and and donate those as well and just kind of promote the whole education around aquaponic cannabis and just sustainable can. not even just aquaponics, but we'll be talking about how we, you can utilize some of this methodology in your soil growing. We understand that, 70 80 90 percent of the people that are watching this probably aren't doing aquaponics and we're going to make sure that you're you know you're, you're still gaining a knowledge and things that you can take away and apply to your soil grow that that maybe you hadn't learned before
0: and there you have it guys you are now obliged to watch it's free what more do you need and i think that comfrey company you mentioned might be casual fields shout out to him he's a really yes. really nice guy i it's appreciate
1: great product by the way it's also aquaponics safe and a wonderful product
0: yeah yeah he's another lovely guy um one of the final things I wanted to quickly ask you about before we get into the quick fire questions, you put up a post which just blew my mind and struck my curiosity like nothing else when you did an episode recently on your show with Kevin McKernan about how COVID-19 was found in cannabis tissue. I mean, this is just wild, you know. I guess the question is, what implications do you think this has? Like, I, the thing that jumped to mind for me is it's like, do you need to be worried about getting COVID-19 from your plant?
1: So, so he... So, okay. So to clarify something on that, and this is something that I misunderstood when when I read that paper and I read it twice before I even interviewed him on that. Um, He developed an allele to test for the presence of of COVID-19. So if you had an employee that sneezed on the plant or coughed on the plant, or if I'm a cannabis dispensary and we allow patients to smell the, the cannabis before they purchase it, is there a way to test for that using a QPCR? And then what type of tests do you have to have? What type of standard do you have to have? So he developed all that. But what he did on that was also develop it for the uh, inputs. And what he found that was scary and what was really interesting if you listen to that episode was how insane the bat guano was and how many different coronaviruses there were in the bat guano and how like it just scared the living crap out of them and, and how like we really need to all immediately stop using bat guano completely in the cannabis industry in terms of biosafety for all not only as a liability for ourselves as a company for whoever you're working for but as an industry because we could be at least accidentally in theory the source of you know the next covid and nobody wants that
0: yeah thank you for that clarification it's still such an extremely valid point i've been thinking something not too different myself I remember I had a friend who got uh, an atypical pneumonia from handling guano last year and I was like this isn't just something you read about it actually happens yeah it's pretty scary Yeah,
1: and I I had a pretty gnarly experience when I was younger with a, a pretty rare type of pneumonia as well and, and we they never figured out where it came from and it makes me wonder because I was often heavily in gardening and now after listening to that it made me wonder is that where it came from
0: yeah, I think that it, it, there could be a whole range of things like that. But that's, that's interesting. And yeah, thanks for clarifying that. So, on to our quick fire questions. I'm really interested to hear your answers for this one. So, the first one I'd like to start out with. What's the most memorable cannabis you've ever smoked in your life?
1: Hmm, Memorable cannabis. Probably two things. One, the last joint I smoked with Dennis Perrone. Uh, at New Year's Eve, uh about two months before he passed away, would be one of the ones that I can think of where I'll never forget that one, ever. I it's the last time I saw him. Um the other one was and that was at, at the castle on New Year's Eve. Um wow. a Castro Castle, anyone that knows the industry um, yeah. or knows Dennis. Um and then uh the other one would probably be Uh, there was one that I smoked with on the dragonfly earth medicine tent two years ago at Emerald cup. And I'm trying to remember who gave it to me. I don't remember. I believe it was a Wade laughter strain, but I don't remember. He handed me the ball and I think he's the one who grew it. but I don't quote me on that, but it was like a 16% something or other. And it just kicked me in the teeth. Like it was just the most, most I've had my bell rung in 10 years um and that was that just stuck with me I, I still i don't even know remember what the name of it was but i just that one just hitting that that pipe you know just a regular glass bowl two or three times uh, just kicked my kick me in like i just did like three gram dab or something like that like it just the terpene profile was just exactly what my body needed
0: Wow, yeah, that's awesome when you get that special hitter like that. So, on the other end of the spectrum, has there ever been a strain where everyone else was really into it, hyping it up and you're like, oh, cool, getting excited and then you try it and you're like, "Uh, it's not for me, I don't get it. Cookies. (laughs) Man, I love this answer because I'm such a diehard cookies fan. Like, I fucking love it, but I get how much people hate it.
1: As a grower, if I never saw cookies again, it would be too soon. Because <laughs> okay. cookies grows these little tiny larfy buds that are just absolutely annoying. is all hell for any of your trimmers to actually. It pr- doesn't produce nice fat stuff. It's easy to trim. It's all these tiny little, you know, super ball size, bouncy ball size nugs that are, you know, quarter size that are just a pain in the ass to trim.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I can certainly agree on that point. I won't argue there.
1: But for resin production for concentrates, I get why people grow it. It makes sense, but.
0: Oh, I agree. For me, smoking it, I love it. For me, growing it, a little less. <laughs> um, so, the next question: If you were stuck on a desert island and you could only take three strains with you, which three would you want to take?
1: So, it'd be Hash Plant G13, my blue hash that I've been working on for quite a few years, and hmm, Island Sweet Skunk by uh, or sweet skunk, not island sweet skunk. Sweet skunk by breeder Steve.
0: Uh, great picks. And just for the viewers, what uh, what went into your blue hash? It sounds interesting.
1: Sure, it's blue dream and Afghan one, um, and hash plant. So it was hash. Oh, well, the plant. It was a- Afghan one and hash plant. and We crossed that, and we got a really fire male out of that we crossed that with a blue dream cut that we had that was really thick stalked, like freakishly thick stalked and just kicked ass in the wind uh, out in the plains in Colorado. That was just, it would grow like into like tree trunks, right? And it would just hold itself up with fat nugs. Even in high winds, it would just take whatever you threw at it. Didn't didn't really get broken at all. And we crossed those. and And the progeny from that, we've developed kind of two lineages that have since been just we've gotten so many different good crosses out of it that that we've kind of you can get if anyone's listening and wants some you can get some through mr green jeans garden if you hit him up on instagram uh he he does does have them available and he's one the only source of the the actual original genetics that i have out there currently
0: damn i'm gonna have to hit him up so on the other end of the spectrum and this is one of my favorite questions if you had to drop off someone you're not particularly a fan of, maybe you might even use the hate word, though it's a little strong, someone you're not a fan of, you're going to drop them off on an island and leave them with three strains. What are you going to leave them with?
1: Okay. Uh, I'd have to think on this for a second. Um, blackberry cookies. <laughs> Mac cookies. And what else has completely no resistance to anything? (laughs) Uh, Citrus sap. The citrus, there's like a citrus glue, citrus sap, fucking citrus gorilla glue cut that's going around Oklahoma that just seems to get every pathogen known to man as well.
0: (laughs) The magnets, yeah. Okay, so final question and I'm interested to hear your answer. If you could go back to any point in history and go anywhere around the globe, presumably to collect some cannabis seeds or a plant, where would you go and when?
1: Hmm. Probably to Southern Africa, uh, like South Africa, Swaziland, or currently East Swatini, and they just changed the name about a year ago uh and uh and zimbabwe that area has some really really bizarre genetics or reunion no take it back take it back reunion island hands down
0: brilliant answer one i've often thought about myself with the the ever elusive psychedelic nature of the zamal i think that just about brings us to the end of it I mean, you know, thank you so much for all the incredible education knowledge on aquaponics, KNF, IPM, organics, just beyond. It's just, it's incredible. If people wanted to check out your podcast, what would be the best place for them to go find it?
1: Sure. Uh, they can check me out at Potent on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify. We're on over 200 different platforms, so they can find us on whatever Whenever fits your most, uh, if, you know, uh, some of our episodes definitely are more video heavy. You know, we have a, a tour of a glass blowing facility and stuff like that. You probably want to check out on YouTube, but I would say 95% of them or 98% of them are perfectly fine to listen to in the audio version, but we get over 20 times the listeners on the audio version. I'm sure you're similar as well, where you get, you know, significantly more listenership on, on your audio version than the video. So. Yeah,
0: that's it, guys. Just Google Potent You'll find it very easily. With that being said, did you have any comments or shout-outs you wanted to make before we wrap up?
1: Um, just uh, if you guys are looking for more information, check me out at uh, you know Growing With Fishes podcast or Potent And if you need uh, aquaponics-safe nutrients, check them out at True Aquaponics uh, is, is uh, really it.
0: Awesome. So, again, Steve, thanks so much for your time today. I know the viewers will absolutely mop all of this up. And thank you for your broader contributions as well.
1: I appreciate you having me. And uh, you know, if we can ever uh, have you back on the show again, we'd love to have you.
0: Damn, guys. Anyone else on their way to go buy an aquaponics setup right now? I think I am. Huge thank you again to Steve. Such an amazing, amazing episode. Please go check out all of his content at Growing With Fishes Podcast, Potent Ponics. You'll find it Google, YouTube, everything. It's all there. Likewise, a huge, huge thank you to our sponsors. Seeds here now, number one seed bank in the game. All the hottest drops, best customer service, everything you need. Why would you go anywhere else? I love them. They're the best. Seriously. Likewise, huge shout out to Copper Biologicals. They got everything you need to keep your garden happy and healthy, be it soil, soilless, bugs, no bugs. They got something for you, trust me, go suss it out. They're gonna make your next harvest even better. They're gonna keep your garden happy and healthy. They're number one in the biz. I love them, you'll love them, give them a shot. And finally, the Patreon gang. We love you guys. Thank you so, so, so much for your support. You really keep the show happening. We appreciate you guys incredibly. If anyone wants to check out the show, if anyone wants to check out the Patreon and get early access to additional episodes, unreleased content and so much more, please check it out. So that's it for this episode, gang. I'll see you back here for the next one from the Upside Down Library. This is your boy Heavy Days signing out i see ya.